Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Tuesday, January 6th. So, 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 the Iowa caucuses, you know, the weather was so bad um, that by I saw one estimate one percent of Iowa voters actually showed up to vote. One percent. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what does it mean? Well, I guess the only takeaway <clears throat> is that um, somehow Ron DeSantis edged uh, Nikki Haley by about one. I think he was 21 something. She was 19 something. It was pretty close. And Donald Trump, of course, uh, ran away with it with 50 percent. But, you know, Charlie Sykes this morning in the Bulwark made an interesting point, And that was it was just Republicans. It was a very small turnout. It's a, a largely white Republican state. And even with all that going on, fully half of the people who bothered to vote that night did not vote for Donald Trump. So take from that what you will. Now everybody is on to New Hampshire. Nikki Haley. uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens after Iowa. Asa Hutchinson, who you didn't even know was still in the race. He bowed out. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, he of uh, every conspiracy theory in the book, he decided to bow out. He came in fourth. So we go on to New Hampshire. And um, the question is, what will Nikki Haley do if she is third in New Hampshire as well? Because the next state is South Carolina, her state. And if she doesn't do it, will, it would be humiliating for her not to do well in her own home state. Um, so, you know, we'll just see how things how things continue to shake out. You know, maybe that um, Koch family pack political money that uh, supposedly is lining up behind Nikki, maybe it'll make a difference. I don't think she'll drop out before New Hampshire, certainly. And I think she'll do everything in her power to ease past Ron DeSantis. Will she stay in the race if she doesn't? That's a very good question. Again, Iowa, a heavily Republican, vastly white, mostly rural state that tends to go very MAGA. But with the cold weather, about 1% of the people who could have voted actually showed up to vote. So what can we say about Iowa? Maybe interesting anecdotally, but meaningless to the big picture. There were no surprises. Oh, maybe if you thought Nikki Haley was going to edge just past Ron DeSantis, maybe that's a surprise. But Nikki Haley um, did not have the organization in Iowa that DeSantis has. And when it comes to bad weather and potentially bad turnout, having an organization in place that can get people to where they need to be to vote can really hugely make a difference. And it is possible. That's what we're seeing in Iowa with the DeSantis edge. 
DeSantis knows he is hanging on by his fingernails. Remember that hot mic that Chris Christie was caught on where his sentence was interrupted halfway? And he said, Ron DeSantis called me petrified that I'll. And unfortunately, the mic went dead then. I, I dollars to donuts. The end of that sentence was that I'll endorse Nikki Haley. But he didn't. And uh, DeSantis um, was able to survive. So really the only real news, I guess, to come out of that is the fact that two people who were hanging into the race with less chance than Nikki Haley have decided to call it quits. So New Hampshire um, will be an interesting race. But again... You've got a state that really doesn't reflect the rest of the country. Again, a very small state, a very largely white state. You know, Donald Trump has got this thing locked up. He does. He absolutely has this thing locked up. Sure, there are polls that say, oh, there are a number of Trump voters who say they won't vote for him if he gets convicted of something. Do you really believe that? I don't. I think that they know that's the kind of thing they're supposed to say. So they say it when somebody is asking them with a microphone uh, in their hands. I think the diehard Trump fans are sticking with Trump. Whether he's convicted of something or not. And as I've uh, I've speculated before. I think. It is going to be very difficult for a judge or jury, even if he is found guilty in one of these court cases, it's going to be very difficult for a judge or jury to sentence him to time behind bars when they know he could potentially be the next president. And also, too, remember, even if he gets a conviction, it's going to be appealed. So the process, he's, he knows how to drag legal proceedings out. That's one thing he's very good at. And the process is going to drag out. So there's, I think, virtually no chance that he will be sentenced to any kind of jail time or prison time, even if he's found guilty. And even if he is, somebody does try to sentence him. I believe uh, a judge would allow him to remain free until that appeal is heard. Come on, what judge is going to put Donald Trump in jail while he's running for president? I mean, that would take bigger stones than I think any human being could possibly have. Plus, I think there might be a backlash. And certainly whatever judge did that would have to move his family into witness protection. That goes without saying. Speaking of Donald Trump in court, he was back in the courtroom today. In New York. Remember E. Jean Carroll, who won a defamation suit against him? I think she was awarded oh, $10 million, and then he defamed her again. So she and her attorney went back to court, and they were like, you know what? Uh, we got to change this amount of money, because now I want not only to be receiving damages she was she was the um advice columnist for i think it was l magazine and they dropped her when all of this was rolling out they dropped her so she's got 
damages that she can tell the court, you know, I mean, how much she was making, how much potentially she would have made had she done that job another 10, 15 or 20 years. That's hard and fast damages. But now she she wants more than that. She wants punitive damages. This is a guy who lost in court because he said things that weren't true. He left court, went outside and said those untrue things again as if they were true. She also wants the judge to restrain what, if anything, he's allowed to say in court because she's convinced that he's going to. Now, remember, this this hearing that's taking place now, there was jury selection today, is to just look at the damages that have been awarded and see if that number should be changed. We are not relitigating whether or not he committed sexual assault or whether or not he defamed E. Jean Carroll. Those two things are set in stone. He did that. She just went back to court and said he didn't he's still doing it. He did it again. And now I want him punished. I don't just want the kind of money that I would have made had I not lost my job over this. I want him to receive an award of damages. I want him to have to pay an award of damages that will teach him once and for all that he can't say these things. So uh, jury selection today. The jury uh, has been seated, and now they are going to hear um, the arguments that uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer is going to make about why the amount of money should be raised. Donald Trump sat in court today. He sat behind E. Jean Carroll, and by all reports of all the reporters who were actually in the courtroom, she never turned around to look at him. And uh, at one point, you know, sometimes he was just looking around. Um, sometimes he would look at the jury. But um, it was interesting because a lot of the reporters who um, were covering this case, you know, their anchors back at the desk were saying, well, you know, he didn't have to be in court. Why do you think he was in court? And they said, you know, it's a campaign strategy. They've realized that when he shows up in court, He gets so much coverage. He gets so much airtime that it sucks the oxygen away from people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. It is an effective campaign strategy. That is why Donald Trump is in the courtroom. It is part of his campaign for president. Because apparently every time he shows up in court, the MAGAs decide they just love him more. As one does. Doesn't one? Hmm. (sighs) Governor Pritzker was in Iowa, and um, he was sort of there as a Biden surrogate, even though the Democrats did not attend the Iowa caucus. And he had some things to say about the results, what he thought about it. Listen to this. Almost half of the base of the Republican Party showing up for this caucus tonight voted against Donald Trump. 
think about that. I mean, this is the most famous Republican. He's the guy who, you know, basically built the modern Republican Party, the MAGA Republican Party that Democrats are running against. And half the people in that party didn't vote for Donald Trump. So I think that is telling. It tells you the weakness of Donald Trump and also the opportunity for Democrats. Because in the end, look, uh, if the base doesn't turn out for Donald Trump in the general election enthusiastically and Democrats turn out its base, this is all about, you know, independents and independents don't like Donald Trump. So I think we're in a pretty good uh, place tonight to, to, to see what's happening on the Republican side. Uh, if Donald Trump, in fact, is the uh, uh, winner tonight and able to win in New Hampshire and in South Carolina, probably the race is over. I'd say the race is already over. But you know what? We've um, we've got to go through the process. Governor Pritzker uh, putting a silver lining on the results in Iowa. But remember, it was wicked cold and almost nobody turned out to vote. So um, will we get a more accurate telling in New Hampshire? Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see how that unfolds. Let's take a break. There's other news. We'll get to it right after this. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez, host of Driving It Home, right here on WCPT. Now that we have an extra hour together, we have more time to cover the important stories of the day, and I always look forward to hearing from you. Let's talk about what's happening to our democracy and what we can do to help each other. I'm so grateful for your support, as well as our sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Car Service, and the Monaco Brewing Company. Patty Vasquez, weeknights 5 to 7 on WCPT 820. This is a WCBT Moment in Labor. The Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or SAG-AFTRA, is made up of approximately 160,000 members, all of whom were cleared to return to work on November 9th, effectively ending the historic 118-day strike, the longest in the union's history. A few key takeaways from the new details of the actors' union contract include wage increases, protections from generative artificial intelligence, streaming revenue, hair and makeup representation, and an intimacy coordinator on all sets. The Writers' Union, the Writers Guild of America successfully ended its 148-day strike on September 27th after reaching a tentative deal with the studios. That agreement was ratified by WGA membership on October 9th. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said in a statement that the tentative agreement represents a new paradigm and it looked forward to the industry resuming the work of telling great stories. Between the two strikes, economists estimate that the U.S. economy was impacted by at least $5 billion. This has been a WCPT moment in labor. We are working for your rights. Looking to purchase a new home? Then you need to call Team Hochberg, your trusted local lender. Saving for a down payment is one of the largest challenges borrowers face when purchasing a home. But I have amazing news. Team Hochberg has a new loan program for borrowers who qualify that will enable you to purchase a home with only 1% down and no private mortgage insurance. You heard me. Team Hochberg has a new loan program that will enable borrowers who qualify to purchase a home with only 1% down and no no private mortgage insurance. To see if you qualify, call Team Hochberg now at 855-563-2843 or visit 56david.com. Team Hochberg has helped thousands of radio listeners secure financing on new homes, but we can't help if you don't call 855-563-2843 or visit 56david.com. 855-563-2843 or visit our website 56david.com. Lower.com, Equal Housing, Lender, NMLS, 112461. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, do you remember that there was a, a partial government shutdown uh, due to take place? Hmm. Friday of this week. Yeah. 20% of the government will shut down if a new budget bill isn't passed. And in just a few weeks after that, the rest of the government begins to shut down. So um, what's, what is a Congress to do? Well, House Speaker Mike Johnson was able to come to a general agreement with Democrats, at least on the overall dollar figure the budget would be. There were some details to be worked out, but they had uh, a basic agreement. Sounds good, okay? At the time this happened, though, there was speculation as to what the far-right members of Congress would do. The far-right members of Congress who torpedoed Kevin McCarthy because he did the same thing. He made a deal with Democrats. And uh, those same people are up in arms again. Mm, in the last couple of weeks, Marjorie Taylor Greene has uh, indicated that she would be open to kicking uh, Mike Johnson out of the speaker's chair. She didn't go as far as calling for a resolution to vacate the chair, which is how you fire the speaker. But she said, you know, maybe we ought to be talking about that. Because the very far right doesn't want any bipartisan anything. Nada. Zero. Zilch. Zip. Um, some people said, well, maybe uh, Speaker Johnson should just do a stop, another stopgap bill. You know, get us through another month and then we'll have time to really deal with this. But Mike Johnson said, you know, I'm not really inclined to do that. Spent a lot of time on this. Put together a deal we think is fair. Um, I don't really see any reason why we need to wait. Well, looks like waiting, putting out a short-term bill, will not only um, be something that's possible, but also something that's necessary. Because uh, the far right showed Mike Johnson that they will not be ignored. How did they do that? <clears throat> At the start of every session, there's a pro forma bill or, you know, that everybody votes on, like how they're going to, you know, it's basically a, a housework, a housework kind of bill. This is this is how we're going to keep the house clean. Um, OK, everybody on the same page. OK, now let's get down to business. It is a pro forma vote. Except it wasn't this time. Our good friend, first-term congressman, Democrat Jeff Jackson from North Carolina, who posts wonderful videos explaining how government really, really works, posted um, this video explaining what happened in Congress. Listen to this. Let me tell you what an ambush looks like in Congress. So we're taking a normal vote. This vote is so normal that entire decades can go by without it failing. It's just the vote that weighs out the other things we're going to vote on. It's the engine that starts the week. All of a sudden, something weird happens. The vote starts to fail. So I'm watching the speaker as the speaker is watching the vote. 
And as soon as the vote starts going down, he marches over to a member of his own party and they start going back and forth. They're standing in the center of the chamber and the speaker is basically telling him, you need to stop this. You need to call off your attack. And the other guy is saying, no, this is what's happening. Why? Because three days earlier, the speaker made a budget deal with the other party. He made that deal because he's trying to prevent a government shutdown that is scheduled for this Friday and then pass an actual budget. To do that, he has to make a deal with the Senate But the Senate is controlled by the other party, so he has to make a deal with the other party. But his right flank in the House, which has about 30 members, has a different idea. They would rather force a government shutdown and then try and use reopening the government as leverage to get the budget cuts they want. But the reason the Speaker doesn't want to do that is because he doesn't think it'll work. He thinks if he forces a shutdown that he'll get blamed And instead of making him stronger in a negotiation, it'll make him weaker. And the reason he thinks that is because that's exactly what happened the last time there was a shutdown. The party that forced it got nothing but a black eye, and then we all moved on. As a political tactic, it usually backfires. So here's what's going to happen. This week, the Speaker is going to call a vote on another extension to give us more time on the budget. But for that to pass, he's going to need a ton of votes from the other party because a lot of folks in his party are going to vote against it, which means he's going to go around his right flank to get this done. And that is going to take them from being so upset that they're willing to ambush him on the House floor to being outside of their heads furious, at which point I honestly don't know what happens next. I imagine they will massively retaliate. And I will keep you posted. Don't you love that phrase? Outside of their heads, angry and upset. I think the next time that I feel angry and upset, I'm going to tell someone, I am outside of my head right now. (laughs) So what's going to happen next? What do I think is going to happen? What could happen? I think that Mike Johnson is going to capitulate. I think he is going to put together a stopgap short-term bill. I don't think he is going to challenge his far-right flank. But what happens a month from now? Is he going to offer them something different? I don't think so. Mike Johnson feels good about this bill that he's negotiated. He clearly thinks it's the right thing. So I could see him capitulating in the short term, doing another stopgap measure, and then a month from now saying, oh, by the way, yeah, remember that uh, negotiation? I think it's great. Here it is. Let's vote on it now. I'm, um, otherwise, I think he's going to go the way of Kevin McCarthy. The party of chaos is going to oust him because that's how they roll. So, 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 so. Um, Emmys were last night. Anthony Anderson did a great job hosting. It was a real tribute to uh, television. That was the Emmy's 75th anniversary, and they really did a great, fun, interesting show. RuPaul, who I believe uh, has won more Emmys than any other person of color, one again uh, for Drag Race. And uh, he had some comments to make about Drag Queen Storytime. Listen to this. And listen, if a drag queen wants to read you a story at a library, listen to her because knowledge is power. And if someone tries to restrict your 
access to power. They are trying to scare you. So listen to a drag queen. We love you. Thank you. Listen to a drag queen. That works for me. Fine advice. Um, One more thing. You probably know this already. Chicago Public Schools not in session today because of the cold. Uh, It is supposed to warm up a little bit this coming Thursday. Our high temperature, don't don't go crazy, could be 21. So no school. I hope you're enjoying your day off if you are a Chicago Public Schools student or teacher. We are going to take a break. We're going to get to the rest of our day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am so happy to welcome back David Pepper. Uh, We talked about his most recent book, Saving Democracy, a while back and had a fascinating discussion about that. Uh, David Pepper also um, has been involved in politics in the great state of Ohio, the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party between 2015 and 2021. David, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. I hope you're not too cold up there. Uh, we are so cold. We are no longer taking the dogs for a walk because their paws start to get frostbitten uh, on the sidewalks. That is that yeah. is how chili beans it is here. But you know what? It's um, with global warming. We've actually had a couple of pretty warm winters. And while I'm certainly no fan of like negative seven degrees, it um, as somebody who suffers from seasonal allergies, I'm glad the fact that all the things that make me sneeze are dead. So that that's a plus. That's funny. Yeah. That and, and it does feel like we should definitely. We could use some colder temperatures to average out what's far too hot a planet at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this might be a little going a little bit too far, but you know, we. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily need a winter that's like sixty degrees. If I wanted that, right. I'd live in a different part of the country. <laughs> exactly. Makes it makes us tough. Uh, this this kind of weather. So uh, let's just, uh, uh, because it just happened last night, I have to start by getting your reaction to the Iowa caucuses. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been kind of rolling my eyes for months now <laughs> as it, as at the coverage of this primary, like there's any doubt that Trump is going to win. Of course he's yes. going to win. The He's essentially like an incumbent. And the other candidates won't really criticize him. And you're never going to beat the guy ahead of you in the polls if you refuse to say anything negative. And, you know, for the most part, until very recently, and these debates were a perfect example. I mean, they're all saying they'll pardon him. They're all excusing away all the criminal trials. And you're not going to beat someone if you actually don't want to run against him in a hard way. And that's why I think they've never had a shot to catch him. So in one way, it wasn't a surprise. But on the flip side, it actually wasn't as decisive as I thought it would be. I mean, he I think he barely topped the 50s. Mm-hmm. And you add up the other candidates. I mean, let's let's assume all of Vivek's votes are Trump votes. But DeSantis and Haley actually ended up being in the 40s together. And so when Trump was clearly seen a runaway winner, the fact that he didn't get much high above 50, the turnout was low, 
to me, is actually kind of a surprise. It was, it, and I'm not just saying that to spin it. I mean, if he won by a lot, I'd say it. But I, I just don't think it was as strong as I thought it would be. I, do you think, though, one thing that concerns me is because the weather was so bad and because they had such a miserable turnout, I'm not sure it means what it, you know, because DeSantis and Trump both had a lot of organization. They had a lot of ground game, much more so than Nikki Haley. And uh, from what I read and heard, they were working very hard to contact their voters and making sure that they had a ride or they needed to get where they, you know, could vote in a, you know, and and they really worked the crowd that way. I, I have I think New Hampshire is going to be more telling than Iowa. I think in Iowa, we had a very small sample. And I guess, you know, it's we still didn't we weren't surprised by any of the results that we saw. But um, I think New Hampshire is going to be more of a contest uh, between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. But I agree with you. Yeah. You know, what I would say is I agree on that. Iowa is I think, you know, I'm I'm basically looking numbers for what they are. But I I think if that's really going to be an issue, we'll see it in New Hampshire, too. I mean, if Trump wins, you know, 65, 70 percent of the vote in New Hampshire, then who knows why Iowa came down the way it did. Uh, mm-hmm. But but if you know if you see the the opponents you know back up to the forties collectively, that's a big chunk of voters saying we don't want to vote for Trump even though even though they probably know he's going to be the guy who wins. So I do think it's um, you know uh, but I do I agree I mean it, we'll see what New Hampshire does if it's similar then we're starting to see a pattern that if I were on the Trump side I'd actually be concerned about especially when some number of these voters are saying they wouldn't vote for Trump in the general which. If that adds up, all of a sudden, that's a real problem. Nikki Haley, I believe, um, was flip-flopping through much of this campaign. And it seemed to me she was trying to not alienate the MAGA voters, but also sort of appeal to the uh, slightly less entrenched uh, Republicans who were thinking of voting in a very conservative way. She seemed to be trying to walk on a knife's edge. And for a long time, I thought, well, maybe she thinks she has a shot at winning. And then when it was apparent that wasn't happening, I thought, well, maybe she thinks she's going to be vice president. And clearly, Donald Trump wants a toady to be his vice president. He said Mike Pence had too much backbone. He wouldn't pick a Mike Pence again. So I don't think Nikki Haley has a shot at a vice presidential slot. So the only thing I can come up with is either she's hoping that Trump has a massive stroke or she's trying to position herself for 2028. What do you think about, you know, because both, like you said, both she and DeSantis are being so careful with Trump. Yeah, I agree. With, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, one, you're not going to win over his voters. If he's in the race and you're saying, oh, he was pretty good, like, why would they ever vote for you? They're going to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're saying, I don't think, and maybe they'll surprise us, I don't think he's going to pick one of them to be his VP. I, I think that he's, and so I, I don't think they're playing for that. I do think much more Nikki Haley than DeSantis. I actually don't, I not only think that she's generally, you know, she's trying to think about 2028. I actually think she's done a pretty good job for herself. The last couple of weeks, I think she's really screwed up. I mean, the, the comments about the civil war, <laughs> hardening Trump, like just truly, you know, even last night when she stood up and said, um, you know, there. I've got one of the two tickets. It's a two-person primary coming out of Iowa. 
Well, you finished third. I don't know how you can even say that. <laughs> just maybe she so met she's, DeSantis and Trump. Yeah, she's just looked kind of like she's just looked really disingenuous. And that that moment about slavery was so disturbing. And the way she said it was such sort of sincerity when it was so obviously absurd. Like, I think she's looked pretty bad lately. But over, you know, I think assuming let's say Trump loses I do think Nikki Haley has probably established herself as the front runner of 28. I, I really do. And I think if that's what her goal was, I mean, then, then what you're saying does make sense. Don't alienate, but don't support. And, you know, in the end, she's probably hoping he loses and then she's the front runner. And I think if that's been the strategy, it probably has worked out pretty well. Um, and maybe she thinks I can clean up the mistakes I made. But I, I think that in the debate, she stood out as actually being better than the other debaters, and she had good moments. And so, yeah, I, I think that to me, that's that, that was a way to and, and I agree with you. They also probably were all running. And this is what's so funny. They would never admit it, either hoping that that the criminal trials would catch up to Trump or that he could be disqualified. I mean, if he were disqualified by the Supreme Court tomorrow, Nikki Haley would probably be the candidate. So I think part of this was always a rolling of the dice that maybe something would happen and he wouldn't be the candidate because my sense is they all probably were smart to realize if he was a candidate, he'd win the primary. I mean, to me, that's always been very obvious. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, New Hampshire will will be the end of it? I mean, if if Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis don't do any better uh, and he still is, you know, Mr. 50 percent, do you think either one of them will drop out? I could see, I could see um, Haley doing well in New Hampshire because New Hampshire's always had an independent streak. I mean, I'm here in Ohio. Kasich actually, I think, overperformed there. Then he stayed in and won Ohio. Um, I, let's say Haley, and this is sort of the, I think the conventional wisdom is that she will benefit from the independent voting that often happens in New Hampshire. I could see that being DeSantis's last one, and then, but and Nikki, what's next? South Carolina, where she was governor, that's a much more conservative state. I could see, so I could see that happening. But I also could see DeSantis. You know, again, they're all probably thinking long term. If DeSantis got out, and his thinking is also about 2028, then getting out and letting Nikki Haley get all the attention for additional weeks even helps her more for 28. So he may stay in just to hurt her. I mean, it's, it's all sort of game of Thronesy at this point, but, but I, I think <laughs> the most succession. likely is it's, I don't know. It's pretty, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she overperforms. I would, I would think that in, the most likely thing I could see happening is she actually does. A, and Chris Christie really helped her here by dropping out that she does substantially better in New Hampshire. And that's when DeSantis really doesn't really have a, a next, um, a next place to go. I mean, even in Florida, DeSantis getting crushed by by Trump in the polls, and that kind of loss would be embarrassing. So, well, and true, I could see that Haley happening in South Carolina. I mean, even if she does well in New Hampshire, uh, the chances of Donald Trump doing better are pretty strong, as they are in South Carolina. Is that does she if she doesn't really knock it out of the park in New Hampshire? Does she go to her home state and be humiliated by losing to somebody that's not from South Carolina? Yeah. I mean, if I'm her, I'm thinking that's a 
major decision that it, it could very well be the best time to get out. I mean, if she doesn't you know, blow the doors off in New Hampshire with a very surprising result, uh, then I agree with that. And the question will be, after all said and done, and this is what's going to be the sad moment, um, <laughs> do they all endorse Trump in the end? And my sad, the sad truth is when you see Sununu of New Hampshire, the governor who endorsed Haley, when you see Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa who endorsed DeSantis, is not only will they drop out, but but sadly, I think they're all going to endorse a guy who obviously is guilty of all the things that he's already going through. And I think will be found probably guilty in the coming months of uh, numerous things. And they, ju- including, you know, all the January 6th stuff. And despite all that, despite all that they've been campaigning on, except for a couple like Liz Cheney and Chris Christie, they're still willing to say they'd like him to be president, which is truly a low moment for the country. And obviously, I think shows just how broken their party is that they're willing to all rally around this guy. So the question is dropping out. And then point two is, do they endorse him? And my the sad truth is, I, I predict they will. Well, again, for 28 Haley, included. Yeah. With Nikki, Haley, I think she would. I think uh, yeah. not only will she endorse Trump if she drops out, I think it will happen in the same breath. I'm suspending yeah. my campaign. I want to get behind Donald Trump. I don't think yeah. there will even be an inhalation between those two things. She's shown us that she is um, uh, she's willing to be extremely flexible <laughs> with her positions yeah. and her beliefs. Now, it would make sense for DeSantis to endorse him. <clears throat> But DeSantis is so cranky, you know, Um, it also wouldn't completely shock me if he refused to endorse anybody because he seems like a bit of a of a of a guy with a temper uh, and um, might not just be able to find the gracious gene buried in his DNA very deeply. Yeah, if he did endorse Trump, it wouldn't be out of some deeper commitment to democracy It would be because, like you said, Personality-wise, he's just not going to do it. Um, but I agree with you on Haley. I think that she, whatever her motivation has been, she'll think it's better for her to endorse mm-hmm. than not. And 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 that's when you have really the whole party going along with a guy who who has done all the things we know he's done because they've been silent for a year and a half. Has convinced his supporters that the election of twenty wasn't legitimate. That January six was a protest. All of it. And all these other, I, 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 tr- I talk about this a lot. Um, in many ways, the more mainstream Republicans endorsing him are actually the more dangerous because they enable it. Yeah. And they also they send give a other signal. Cover. Yeah, they give cover and they sanitize him. Mm-hmm. You know, seven years ago, when he or whenever the year is, when he went down that escalator, Marco Rubio and all of them wouldn't have been caught. Dead. They would have said, this guy's crazy. They did say it. And so now when they take the brands they have built up over the years to be, some of them at least, like this Sununu in New Hampshire, more reasonable, more centrist. And then when they say to their supporters, we're okay with this guy, they're literally cleaning up the mess for him. And in many ways, if you look at how authoritarians rise, those are the most dangerous enablers because they're wrapping him in sort of a a brand of more legitimacy, of less extreme than those people really are. And I can't, when the history and pattern of this type of rise is so blatantly clear, it's astounding to me that they almost all still do it. He, his first attack 
is not against Democrats. It's against those in his own party. And they all willingly go along with it until he's taken over the whole place. It's very dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, I um, follow Adam Kinzinger and read his Substack, And he always talks about how virtually when he was in Congress, virtually every Republican behind the scenes agreed with him that Donald Trump was unfit. He didn't have the temperament. He didn't have the intelligence. He didn't have the patriotism to be doing that job. But he said, you know, and then we'd um, then we'd have to do something publicly. And I was the pariah. I was the only one willing to say publicly what they were all saying privately. And I agree with you. Those are the people because, you know, you think, well, Donald Trump, he's a nut job. But Nikki Haley, she seems to really, you know, if I like her, she seems to really be smart and everything. And she says Donald Trump is okay. So he really isn't that bad, is he? Yeah, and if you're if you're an outsider watching, you know, and she knows him, she knows him. He may seem crazy on that stage, but if she's saying it, maybe she knows that he's not as not that bad. Exactly. So no, I think they're they're dangerous, and you know, I I just I res- I think you know Democrats sometimes like to pound on Republicans who used to do one thing and now are actually doing the right thing. This is too serious a time to to. If Liz Cheney and Kinzinger and Chris Christie right now are willing to call Trump out, their voices really matter, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like in Ohio, we had a really good year last year protecting democracy, that crazy issue one uh, attack on our democracy. One of the key reasons that we won that was to their credit, people like John Kasich, former Governor Taft, big Republican name, and other Republicans actually said, we don't agree with this, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the effort to make our democracy basically no longer work here. And that gives, as we talked about, when mainstream people endorse Trump, that gives cover to vote for him. But when, when more mainstream Republicans call out Trump, that actually gives, out, gives cover to some voters to quietly show up at the polls and think, you know what? I also am not that comfortable with this guy. And since John Kasich is saying it or Liz Cheney, I'm with them. I'm still a Republican, but I don't agree. So I think voices like Kinzinger's and others actually are really important. You know, I'm glad they're there versus every single one of these folks mm-hmm. doing what I'm afraid Nikki Haley's going to do. Yeah, uh, I, I see it. I see it that way as well. And I, I know that Nikki Haley does whatever she feels is expedient at that moment for her for her campaign. And I believe she'll endorse Trump because maybe in the short term she sees that as being important. But it really, truly bothers me, you know, that that she doesn't appreciate or doesn't care about just what you're talking about, the long term damage, the damage that her taking that public position is going to is going to bring about. I I really I really find people like that who are only doing what is best for them. They're in many ways not much better than Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, think about the risk that they are imposing on all of us for their own potential to move up in their in the way they want to move up. I mean, they're willing to literally take that much more much graver societal risk roll the dice because they think someday it may help them. I mean, it's terrible. And you know what? Again, not to not to get carried away here, but you go back 
to how authoritarians rose all over this world over centuries. And there's always a group of people that think, okay, I'm going to go along with it because this guy's kind of a fool. And at some point, I'll be able to reassert control over this person, and I'll be the one on top. And those people almost always lost. They almost always were overconfident in their ability, and they underestimated just how far the person they were enabling would go. And that's the pattern we're seeing again now. It's, it, the, the parallels to the past are really disturbing. Uh, but there's always been this group of people who they think they know better. They think they're, they're positioned to long-term be on top. And in tragic situations, they end up not being, and then they've enabled something terrible to come forward. So I'm afraid that's, what, that's the wrong game these guys are playing now as well. And they've played it for years. I mean, this is a complete redo of what happened in 16. And we're doing it again. And it started, by the way, when they didn't impeach him in, what, January, February of 2021, when Mitch McConnell and others could have gotten rid of him. But even then, they still made the same mistake. Oh, you know, we're better off keeping his people happy. He won't come back and haunt us. Well, that's what he's done. Yeah. I heard and read that, you know, you know, Mitch McConnell only speaks publicly about exactly what he wants to share the way he wants to share it. But there were reports back then from other people saying that privately Mitch McConnell was urging Republican senators during that second impeachment to vote Donald Trump out once and for all. I believe the way he was supposedly he supposedly told them that Donald Trump was a cancer. They had a chance to excise the cancer and Democrats had handed it to them. In other words, they could do this and still somehow figure out a way to make it Democrats fault that it happened. But they could use this to get rid of him. And from what I heard from supposed behind the scenes reporting, there were Republican senators who went to McConnell and said, you can't ask us to do this. This is the death knell. We won't get uh, we won't get reelected. You know, we're going to be primaried by MAGAs. We're going to lose. We're going to get kicked out of the Senate if we do this. And supposedly then Mitch backed off and was like, you know, vote, vote however you want to vote. That's interesting. If that's true, like, not think about what would have happened. Um, they're, they're right. They would have risked their own reelection, and sometimes that's like tough luck. This is public service. You took an oath mm-hmm. to the Constitution. Do the right thing. Your legacy, long term, will be very strong. Um, at the same time, I actually think that that if you had a non-Trump candidate for president, they would actually be better positioned to win the presidency this November than Trump. Because I think Trump does bring, and so Mitch McConnell politically they have taken the pain up correct. Front, they would be in a whole different position now. But every time they have Absolutely. a chance to end it, take the pain and end it, they cowered out. Yeah, and in the end, I think Mitch McConnell is probably looking, thinking, you know what? If Trump weren't the candidate, we probably would have a better chance to beat Biden than if it is Trump. And and. My guess is that's probably the case. That Trump is the one, um, for a variety of reasons, that is. And I don't take it for granted. I think I think Bob Biden and everyone's going to fight very hard to beat Trump. But I think other candidates, if they were the candidates now, would actually be better positioned to win. And if Mitch, like you said, if they had ripped the bandaid off and made it so he could not run, then I think they would have made the long-term path for themselves so much easier than what they've done. Because now they're stuck with him as much as the country stuck with him. And that's just, you know, that's a nightmare in of itself. They're stuck with him. Mm 
And to the extent <laughs> yeah. Kinzinger's right that they all know what a nightmare is, like they they you know continued their own nightmare of being stuck with this guy for as long as he's around if they keep you know, going along with it. Yeah. You know, uh, David, you have seen politicians um, up close and personal for for much of your of your career. Is the sort of cowardice we're seeing now, is that is is that the way it's always been? And, and those of us just who aren't plugged in never really understood that it was um, just a, a legislative body filled with self-serving uh, me first kind of folks. You know, I, I, it's easy to say, um, well, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer except for my lifetime. I actually think that in the last decade or so, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think what's happened in politics has gotten so toxic through all, a, a whole lot of things, but especially intense gerrymandering, that it has basically not – it has created um, just such an incentive to be extreme that maybe politicians have overheard, but at a certain point, they knew that if – with Joe McCarthy, once he had lost his sort of standing – they were scared they'd get out for being with Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. But in a world where they never have general elections and they're only worried about their next primary, now they're scared of the extremists of their own party. So maybe the politicians are always going to look out for what's best long term for them. But we've created a system where they are most scared of the extremists of their own party. And so now, rather than, again, standing up and speaking to sort of the, the, the middle of America, yes, Donald Trump led an insurrection. We know 60% of you are appalled by that insurrection, so we're going to stand with the 60%. Not only was that the right thing to say, but also in their best interest in a general election. Now, when almost everyone is in a gerrymandered district, that all may be true, but they're thinking, well, they're most scared of the, the 25% who, who love Trump, don't think it was an insurrection, but make up 70% of their primary electorate. Mm-hmm. So I think they're, they're fearful but they fear their own. And that's why, you know, I, I went through this with um, a couple months ago. We are talking about an entire generation of politicians who, due to gerrymandering, have almost to a person not ever been in a real election. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, his first state house race, un, unopposed. His second state house race, unopposed. His three congressional runs, he won by 40 percent. His most recent one, unopposed. Now he's Speaker of the House. The guy's never been in a real election. And so they're driven by a different, you know, they're driven by a very different mindset than, let's say, John Glenn was in Ohio. He was thinking, I represent the breadth and overall balance of Ohio. So that's who I represent. That's how I operate. People like Mike Johnson only represent in their minds the extremist wing put them in or out in the next primary if they even have one. And I think that's driving so much of the behavior of the entire party, essentially. Does that make um, sense? It does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. And um, we we just have a couple of minutes left. But do you think with uh, what's going on over the budget right now, is uh, Mike Johnson going to be uh, kicked out of the speaker's chair? You know, I'm not sure. I, it's very hard to predict. I, I, it's clear that he's living on very, very thin ice. Um and it won't get any better if he's kicked out. It'll only get worse. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about, you know, Truman, when no one thought he could win, getting reelected, running against a do-nothing Congress. And I can't imagine that the do-nothing Congress Truman beat 
basically, he used the entire election cycle to go after that Congress and not Dewey. And it worked. I can't imagine that Congress was less productive than this one. And so I just think the 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 opportunity here, um, you know, if, the, if they don't pass a budget, if they we have Republicans in the Senate who are working with Democrats to have a deal on the border and the Republicans in the House say, well, we don't really care what the deal is. We won't do anything that helps Joe Biden. Right. We want to help Trump. All of it. I mean, I would honestly just go to town from Biden to every candidate for Congress against his do nothing House majority. And I think it's a very potent, ultimately a, a potent way to actually have a good year for not just Democrats, but democracy. If, if the swing races in New York and California, uh, if some of the new seats that, got, that are gotten rid of because of, of, of gerrymandering rulings, there's a huge opportunity to pick up House seats. But I also think Joe Biden running against the do nothing Congress is also a big opportunity for him. Yes. Especially if that Congress, I mean, it's clear that they're taking marching orders from Donald Trump. The minute Mike Johnson took over, they go forward on a, this ridiculous impeachment stuff. Uh, they don't want to do anything on Ukraine now, even though McCarthy would have. I mean, they're basically doing Trump's bidding. And so I think you tie it all together. They're doing Trump's bidding. And even though he's a Trump guy, it may not save Mike Johnson. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, but yeah, I mean, I, talk about it. Yeah, you know, ter- just a terrible. Uh, he signed up for it, though, and uh, he knew what he was right. getting into. That's right. David Pepper, uh, his most recent book, Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. Thank you for being here. It is such fun talking to you, David. Of course. Great catching up. Take care. You, too. We're going to take okay, a break for news soon. and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. This is one of our fun segments we do every month. We invite former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze and former Trib and sometimes editor, uh, current Courier Newsroom contributor Mark Jacob to join us and talk about how the media is doing its job, something that is going to become more and more and more critical as we work our way up to this presidential election we've got coming. First of all, Mark, Jennifer, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good. I'm so glad to have you guys back. Um, I know there's lots of things that we're ready to talk about, but considering what happened last night, I think we have to start with with Iowa. I I'm going to weigh in here um, as a Charlie Sykes said, prepare yourself for a lot of boring punditry that people who um, don't really care about Iowa and realize that it don't doesn't really amount to much are still going to try to be uh, controversial and insightful and uh, memorable when it comes to their comments. I thought that was uh, I thought that was funny and also very true. Uh, Jennifer, you want to start off by weighing in on uh, the media reporting on the Iowa caucuses? Well, as I understand it, it was about half uh, the number that were there in 2020 when, of course, both parties were participating. But they still clocked in, at least in Des Moines, where the, you know, the center of the state for this activity was happening, um, at about 1,200 journalists. Um, In my mind, uh, it was still overdone, overblown, overdone, too many people, too much coverage, 
for something that was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Maybe there was going to be some mystery about second place. But Trump was always going to win. And it was always going to win by a lot. If, you know, 52,000 votes is a lot. I don't know. I think, you know, if they were, you were running here in Chicago, um, you know, that, that might have won you one ward, you know, just for context sake. But I just feel like um, we're making media spectacles out of things, out of habit these days, not out of, um, not for merit. I just, you know, it wasn't that big of a story. And do you I think, think we... Do you think the, like, the, the CNNs, you know, who did this big wall-to-wall coverage for what you're absolutely right. It was a foregone conclusion. Um, maybe there was a little bit of mystery as to whether or not Nikki Haley or DeSantis would end up being on top. But what's the alternative? Oh, we're just going to maybe mention it at the top of the hour, and then we're going to talk about what? Uh, crime, the opioid epidemic, uh, the most uh, recent missing person case? <clears throat> I mean, don't you well, figure that they did what they thought their audience wanted? No, that's not why they did it. <laughs> no, no, let's let's throw that idea out the window right really? now. <laughs> oh my God! Well, wait, I mean, who except the three of us is watching round the clock coverage of anything? Please, <laughs> nobody does that anymore. That's no. Why did they do it? Because they've always done it. Because honestly, it's easier to do that. It's easier to say if you're a ne- uh, television network to move a group of people to one place and do something you've done before in a place you've done it before, as opposed to, oh, I don't know, sending a crew to Texas to see what the hell's going on with Greg Abbott, you know, and Mm -hmm. his guys refusing the, you know, the border patrol access to, to the river. I mean, it's actually easier to take a, a, fairly good sized group of people to one place than it is to cover news in various places. You know, it's just a logistical, um, less of a logistical challenge. I just think they do it because it's easy and it's expected. And I think these things are on the calendar and they happen because they happened before. And there isn't a lot of, Hmm, maybe, you know, maybe let's, let's not, Send as many people or not do as many shows. I just was reading the press release that NBC News put out about its coverage. It was stunning to me how they were bragging about basically every entity that they had was going to be in Iowa, covering Iowa, floor to ceiling, you know, for like a week. And I thought, wow. That's a lot of wasted resources when you could be other places. How many people do you have in Texas, NBC News, covering this far bigger constitutional crisis we have going on there? I'm not saying don't cover it. I'm just saying... Don't blow uh, it out. Well, uh, yeah, let's start to be a little smarter about resources in an era where resources are limited for all news organizations. Mark, what was your observation? I mean, I kind of agree that that news media, uh, national political news media, loves to do the same things they've always done, and and I was just a, an example of this. This is why that you know, in when Trump, you know, came with his authoritarian, you know, racist, sexist message, 
burst on the scene in 2015, 2016, they didn't know how to handle it because it, because it wasn't the same old crap that they've been doing all along, the same old kind of kabuki theater that they, they were used to and liked. And so they didn't, they, the news media, unfortunately, hates uncertainty. I mean, it's ridiculous because when I was in the news media, I loved when unpredictable things happened because that's what news was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, it was funny. In the newsroom, you know, something wacky would happen. I'd say, oh, that's great. we, we got to go cover that. And someone would look at me like, no, that's going to be a lot of work, and we don't know what's going to happen. You know, they, and, and so there are different impulses in the news media about that. But, but I do think the national news media is just in these – they're in this cycle of doing the same thing all the time, and they don't want to be, you know, shaken out of it. Um, and, and let's just look at Iowa here. It's, you know, it's the sixth widest state in the union and it's not, I mean, it's, I I understand being alarmed a little bit. I was alarmed a little bit about the results yesterday because, you know, you have like half of the Republican voters in Iowa voting for a guy who's clearly a, a, a criminal and clearly has even said he wants to be a dictator. So, I mean, it's, and this is, and it is true that like a dozen years ago, Iowa voted for Barack Obama. So it's not, so there's been a shift there in some regard that I think we have to be alarmed by and, and, and figure out. But, but Iowa isn't really that important. And it seems, it's, it's kind of stupid that we like, that the news media act like it's super important for like a week or two, you know, every four years and then ignores it the rest of the rest of the time. And it's, yeah, it's dumb. It'd be much better to spend the resources doing, Harder stories. Jennifer mentioned the border, which would be a you know great story to do. How about going down to the South Side of Chicago and talking to some black voters about how they how they feel about Biden and whether mm-hmm. they're going to stick with him? Wouldn't that be a lot better story than interviewing the same old Iowa people saying the same old Iowa things over and over again? Do you think part of it is that they they didn't want to lose the PR war? Let's say CNN does that, mentions it once or twice an hour, but focuses on other more important stories. Do you want to give MSNBC the ability to start doing promos down the road? We were the station that gave you wall-to-wall coverage. We are the station that cares about politics. We are the station you should be watching anytime there's anything political. I mean... How much of that of, of that was not wanting to be outdone by the other guys? Well, I don't think that's, that's necessarily a part of it. I think it's it's worse than that. I think it, <laughs> it isn't about <laughs> it isn't about like what press release I can say or promo because again nobody cares. But there, you know, it, journalism is very incestuous. So you work at CNN, then you work at MSNBC, you work at the Tribune, then you work at the Sun Times. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, you, and there's a collective. We got to cover the Iowa caucuses. And I I don't know that I think it's necessarily um, platform specific as opposed to we're political journalists. Damn it, we got to cover the the Iowa caucuses. And we got to cover them in all our shows because honestly, we don't know where the viewers are. They could be anywhere. And so we're going to do this. And now we also have streaming. So we're going to put it there and we're going to do that. And we're going to do this because really it's harder not to do it. That's the thing. I think it's harder to make other decisions. It's super easy to say, Hey, Uh everybody go to Iowa. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as you guys both know, are. being in positions of power, if the higher ups come in the next day and they're like, where the hell were we in Iowa? Why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? It would be those managers who made those calls that this is a, a, a not a very um, informative event. Let there are other things that need our attention. You know, that that would be hell to pay. And sometimes people just aren't that brave. It's easier to yeah. just go along, do what you've done before and not stick your neck out. Oh, yes. Yeah. Second guessing is not a it, is not a spectator sport. I mean, it is. Everyone in journalism second guess. Oh, did he do that? Should we have done that? It's safer to everybody do the same thing. <laughs> but one of the big problems, one of, maybe the biggest problem in journalism today, is is journalists who want to impress their um, their fellow journalists and their sources. And they're in the and somewhere down lower in, on the list of people they care about are the consumers are the, the public. And a so they make a lot of decisions in order to pr- impress each other. And, and, and yes, this is a thousand a percent. Good of that. And to get other gigs. I'm going to go do this and I'm going to be really cool. And so then I'll get a cable gig, which pays me three times as much as I make in my other, my real reporting job. So it's all, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's very self-serving and very cowardly, I think. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, Mark, today in your Stop the Presses newsletter, you wrote about media amnesia. Tell us what that is. Well, it, that's when the news media decide when some, someone has some politician has done something awful and gets it's a, like a one day scandal. And then the news media forget all about it. The main example I used was Representative Ralph Norman of uh, of South Carolina, who uh, it was revealed more than a year ago that uh, that he had sent a text to Mark Meadows in the White House. This was after the the January sixth insurrection, but like three or four days before the inauguration of Biden, and he had sent a text to Mark Meadows in the White House, the chief of staff to Trump, saying, "You got to tell the president to declare martial law. We have to have martial law. We have that's the only way. You know, we have to stay in office." which to me is, you know, traitorous. And um, so that was a big story for a day, and then it was forgotten. And I went back and looked at the New York Times archives for how many times Ralph Norman had been mentioned in the New York Times since then. And in the, in the last year, I counted 34 times he'd been mentioned and never did it mention that. Never did it mention he'd send a text to the White House calling for martial law to send the military out to stop Biden from getting, uh, taking office. And and to me, that's it's what I call you know it's amnesia. It's it's amnesia that turns into amnesty because it means that that, that uh, the bad actors get away with it. They can outrun you know their own records. I, I gave a couple of examples. There's, there are other examples. Bernie Carrick, the guy who a New York uh, City police commissioner, who Maggie Haberman keeps on describing as former New York City police commissioner. And neglecting to say that he was also was uh, was convicted of tax fraud and did three years in prison. She forgets to say that. Who's responsible for this kind of amnesia? People editors. like their editors, their managers, editors. their yeah, producers. It's editors. It's editors. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. Here's the problem. Like when there was one of the Ralph Norman stories I cited was a story about him proposing congressional term limits. Well, that would have been a perfect story to to just mention 
to say, well, he, he may be in favor of term limits for Congress, but he didn't want Trump to leave after his term was up. I mean, that, it, to me, that would have been just a natural thing to just say, but nobody said it because they just they were focused on what they were doing. I don't I, in the piece. I, you know, I, I say I don't know whether it's, you know, n- neglect or they just forgetfulness or whether they just want to they don't want to burn a source. I mean, that could be it, too. I mean, or they don't want to look partisan. That's the thing. Whenever you mention unpleasant things that people have done in the past, I think that journalists are a little worried about making them look partisan when it just makes it look like they know how to put context into their stories. Jennifer, your thoughts? Well, I think uh, follow-up follow or the lack of follow-up, which is kind of what Mark is talking about here, is a it's it's almost uh, is such a serious problem in journalism, um, and and I'm not sure why, except that again, leaning into it's easier not to. <laughs> um, in that, gosh, you know, I only have a minute and a half if I take. 15 seconds to remind people who, in this case, Norman is, um, you know, then I can't put in that really great sound bite where my hair looks really nice. <laughs> and, um, and you know, but I mean, I think those, those are part of the calculation. That's part of the calculation. Um, I have so many inches, so I'm not going to do that. But what, and anybody who follows me on social media knows one of my biggest gripes is the lack of context. Don't right. tell me this person said X as if that's like a standalone thing. Tell me what they said before that contradicted it. Or, you know, I mean, we ha- your job as a journalist is to help us understand, not just to do play-by-play. Right. If, if, if you're, you're going to do your job, help me understand by telling me he said that yesterday, but two days ago he said this. And here's that's why it means something, you know. Well, that's the value add. Don't you think that that's I mean, yes. any of us could, could, could just watch a press conference and, you know, pull a soundbite. Right. Right. But value added journalism is journalists being able, being smart enough and experienced enough to say, well, he may have said this today. But three years ago, he was on the opposite side. I mean, think that's that's what makes journalism good, you know, and, and right. makes it better than just than just transcriptive. And uh, and and so when when journalists forget to, they just develop this amnesia, and they're not going to like remind us about stuff that happened in the recent past. They're really letting the bad actors get away with stuff. Yes, and you the know, bad actors have... know that, and they yeah. take advantage of it. I, I know that Washington Post and New York Times have. Decent-sized staff. But one thing that I'm always worried about, um, reading, like, say, our beloved Chicago Tribune, is that it has been, the personnel have been cut to the point where, um, if you if you look at the bylines, it seems like uh, people are working and trying to write multiple stories at the same time. Um, they're clearly trying to get every bit of work they can out of the people they have. And when you're under a time crunch like that, the idea of spending an extra few minutes, you know, double checking that this person you're reporting on has not done something like this. Sometimes 
um, that can get lost. And it's just human. You know, I've got these three stories. I've got to get them done by this time. So I just don't have the time to to do as much background, do as much research, do as much fact-checking as I would have otherwise done. Again, I don't think this is an excuse for the New York Times and probably not the Washington Post, but for a lot of publications that are really working with tight budgets these days, I worry about that I because that sort of stuff takes time. You know, that's why, you know, when a television station it used to be the the joke that if a television station was trying to save money, the first thing they cut was their investigative unit because, you know, they worked every day, but they didn't produce output every day. And you can't bother. You know, you need people who are going to put something out every day. What about that? Well, you know what? I, I'm going to say that I disagree with you for this reason, and that is. I find this to be the biggest problem with D.C. or New York-centered publications, organizations, whose job it is, is to cover politics. And the reporters are on beats, and they know these people. They've covered them for years. It is their job to know these things. This isn't like, you know some news producer in Champaign, Illinois, who's hustling to produce four newscasts in a day. I'm worried about the people who are at another level doing another job and, and knowing those things about these act, various politicians, et cetera, and these issues is their job. It's not like, oh, gosh, I'm doing seven stories. I can't get to that. Or, oh, I left it out. Mm-mm. I, I, I don't, I'm not going with that. If you're a Politico, I'm sorry. The name of the place you work for is politics, has the word politics in it. <laughs> you're supposed to know this stuff. That's why you work there. Yeah, and also, and also editors are supposed to help. I mean, if a reporter is really busy, and, they, and like, like the story that I mentioned, the Ralph Norman story where he's talking about term limits, but they forget to say that he wanted, you know, Trump to stay in office beyond his term. Uh, I mean, that would have taken an editor I mean, 90 seconds to, to write that into to write that sentence into the story, email his reporter, say, Hey, I added this. That's what it would have taken. So I, I, I just don't think that, they, that they're too, you know, time stressed in to, to do the right thing. I, I don't, I don't know what the reason is other than that. They, they, they want to stay, they don't want to get detoured from what they're talking about. Although I thought that was very relevant. Relevant details that help from the past that help the reader assess the credibility of the person they're talking about is what they should be doing. I don't want them to just, you know, whack Republicans for all their nasty deeds in the past. As I pointed out in my piece, what I want, I think that it's relevant to say when a Republican has done a horrible thing in the past because that plays on their credibility, which is why, like, when Kellyanne Conway lies, isn't, isn't it worthwhile to, like, remind the reader that she lies all the time and, and point out some of her biggest lies? Because that's going to help the reader understand how to assess what she says. Is Kellyanne Conway still making the rounds of media outlets? I haven't seen her from her in a while. What? Joan, she's on Fox all the time. Oh, that's why. I don't watch Fox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's been... And the thing is, she's got more than, you know, more than nine lives, for sure. Because, you know, she... I mean, as I as I pointed out when I was writing, I wrote, mentioned her in the piece, too, and I 
you know, I point out, you know, she said that, you know, in the first week of March 2020, she said that that COVID was contained. I mean, she announced that it's, it's contained, you know, right. And, you know, and, and there's all kinds of making up a terrorist attack called the Boeing, you know, Green Massacre. I mean, she has plenty of whoppers, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She's a professional liar. And I think that people at Fox think she's very good at her job. You know, I, I wonder um, about people like that. You know, we talk about Nikki Haley, or at least I've talked about Nikki Haley, kind of uh, watching which way the wind is blowing and altering her statements. You know, her most recent crazy statement has the United States has never been a racist country. OK, OK, Nikki. Right. Um, and Alina Haba, Trump's attorney, who um, is, you know, carrying his water on a on a daily basis. How, do you think they really are true believers? Does Kellyanne Conway believe everything she says or does she simply not care? And is she so thirsty for the attention that whatever it takes to get the attention is OK? I wonder about things like this. Well, here's what I think. It doesn't matter. It, I don't <laughs> think it matters. Because yeah, the fact that she's Jen, doing Jen, it, Jen. her motivation doesn't matter because she's doing it anyway. So does I, she really yeah, believe no, it, or is she? As a student of human nature, though, don't you? Aren't you curious a little bit about about whether, you know, when, when you have these these just this giant parade of lies on the right, don't you wonder every now and then whether they're lying or whether they're deluded? I, I do. Well, I, I, I try to figure it out. Here's what I think. I here's what I think we do know is that it's about power. Yeah. I don't think the question is really even about do they believe it or not. The question is, do they? this is their avenue to get pa- fame and power, and so they will do and say what they need to to get those things or to get those things again. I mean, because obviously truth is not really in play here. <laughs> I think it's yeah. more about power. I, I think I think you're right, too. I just am, I can't imagine, you know, in the dark of night when she's getting um, snuggly in bed that Kellyanne Conway feels good about her life. Like, oh, man. Yeah. You oh, know, um, I, I, no, I was on no. four talk shows today. I'm killing it. I don't think yeah. you think you should feel shame. I think I think that, that what, what I've always said is that the, the Republican superpower is lack of shame. As they yeah, have, they yeah just do I not, agree. They're not ashamed of it. They think that lying is just a, a regular campaign tactic, like putting up a yard yeah. sign. I mean, that's in, what they in think. In pursuit I mean, of power. In pursuit right. of power. Right. It doesn't matter. Tactics doesn't matter, you know, and justifies the means. Yeah. Okay. Um, we are doing our monthly media segment. I am joined by Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Former Sun-Times and Trib editor Mark Jacob and former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze join me once a month, and we talk about how reporters are doing their jobs or not. Guys, I want to share with you this column that was posted yesterday by one of the Bulwark writers, Jonathan Last. The title is... The media keeps trying to, quote, understand, unquote, Trump voters because they don't want to accept the truth about them. 
Okay, uh, here's a little bit of what he writes. Over the weekend, the New York Times ran part 937 in its continuing attempt to understand Trump voters. It's a gorgeous premium package filled with portrait photography and earnest quotes. The Times wants you to know that they're not just hearing these patriotic Americans, they're listening to them. For example, Jan Altina is voting for Donald Trump because he's got principles. That's the key feature here. And uh, they also talked to 52-year-old musician and economist Jesse Gutierrez, who says when Trump was in office, the economy was in absolutely terrific shape. There was more competition, more freedom. And then Jonathan Last chimes in again. Uh, just as a factual matter, this is false. Every single word of it. But the New York Times has nothing to say about that because we must understand why these people support a man who wrecked the economy, voted for insurrection, etc., and so forth. And he says, as always, the New York Times is part of the effing problem. This package does nothing to help readers understand the motivation of Trump voters. It merely amplifies their fact-free feelings. This is something both of you guys have talked about repeatedly. And apparently, it's not getting any better. Um, Mark, you want to start with this one? Yeah, I will. But uh, I know, I know Jen, is, uh, she's tweeted about this, uh, too. But, uh, but I, I totally agree with the idea that that one of the big problems is when they do, you know, do this man on the street stuff with uh, with uh, Trump voters, they just let them talk and talk, and they never like, or rarely, I'll say, they, they do they go say, well, why do you feel like this? Why do you think the the, the election was stolen? And then and and, and and press them because what you're going to find out is they don't have any facts behind it because mm-hmm. obviously there are no facts that support that. So. But instead, they just let them talk, and, and, and the, the impression left is that, wow, these, this seemingly normal person has these views, therefore those views must be normal. So, I, th- I, I mean, I think that that kind of man in the street the treatment exacerbates the problem, you know. And, and, and we'll, you, know, you don't really need to, like, talk to 20 people, you know, on, at a, some diner in Iowa to understand why they're voting for Trump. They vote for Trump because Fox News told them that they should. And, uh, you know, and right-wing propaganda is a powerful tool that's been very successfully used over recent decades. And, and you know, that's, to me, the two-word summary of the last 10 years is propaganda works. And, mm-hmm. that's, and that's what we've seen. And so, okay. and so that's the answer. You don't need to talk to people in a diner. Right. Uh, well, Jennifer- no more diner stuff. No more <laughs> diners. I'm telling you. My head is going to explode if another news outlet, i.e. the New York Times, does another. We talk to some Trump voters, and it's always in a diner. And it's, But they've been doing it now for eight-plus years. And um, we all live in um, blue Illinois and blue Chicago-ish. Um, and I've never seen anybody come here and talk to anybody in this area or or Minnesota or parts of blue Wisconsin or parts of blue Ohio. There are little parts of it. Um, the, I do not understand the obsession with trying to understand Trump voters, but then not really doing it like Mark said. 
I don't believe handing the microphone, the megaphone over to people to spout crazy stuff again and again and again is really bringing us any closer to understanding anything. Like Mark said, I couldn't agree more. I think it normalizes the crazy, particularly in the glossy presentation. Um, We're taking this so seriously. We're bringing in a special photographer. We're doing a multi... For those of you who haven't seen it on the New York Times website, this particular uh, story is... It, it moves. It's animated. <laughs> it has pictures and headlines that are moving across the page and gorgeous photography. So it's a real commitment to a story. They spent time and money. But when you look at the content of the story, it's the same story they told us eight years ago. People are pretty much saying the same thing, you know, just a little bit more updated crazy. And but that's, there, there's no facts and context in it. So so what are we doing? Are we are we trying to get those people to buy subscriptions to the New York Times? <laughs> are we trying to say, look, we we know how to cover Republicans? I, I don't know. I don't know. I I'm like out of my mind about it. Here's my theory. <laughs> I think it's I think it's all it's these you know the, true true journalism elites. Uh, in Manhattan, who are thinking that uh, that well, we don't understand these you know flyover people who are you know these Trump supporters. We have no idea what they're what's motivating them. They're total strangers to us. So, so we will send reporters out on an anthropological mission. You know, it's like they're going to you know deepest darkest mm-hmm. wilderness yeah. to go find them. They're going to and, the Amazon. Yeah, that's what that's what I think it is. I. I, 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 because they keep on greenlighting the same story over and over and over again. It's it's bizarre. You never. I I can't think of a time when they when they when they said, well, we're going to go to this one place in Michigan that's really heavily blue, and we're going to like ask them why they're so liberal. I, I, do you remember seeing a story like that? I don't. So 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 why do they keep on doing the same damn story about you know these people these strange people from red states and why they feel the way they do? If, 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 they, if they actually, if they weren't so detached from them in the first place, they'd understand what motivates them. And, and to a large extent, what motivates them is, in my opinion, is racism and sexism and, and fear of outsiders. You know, just fear of the other, which has been, uh, been weaponized brilliantly by right-wing media. Why do you guys think there haven't been similar stories about Biden voters or Hillary voters before that? What is it? Because nobody's done them. What, through the years, nobody's done the same, um, let's take a look at this and understand that. I remember a couple of people that, you know, these ladies are wearing pantsuits because Hillary wears pantsuits, and isn't that interesting kind of stories. Um, but I don't really recall any kind of coverage on the other side of the coin from these news organizations, do you guys? I mean, I don't, I just don't get it. I do not get it. No, yeah, it's like I, I we can't. don't have to talk about um, the Democrats because we understand them. You know, that's like right. I think the implied thing is what Mark yeah. was referring to. That those that, that's people like us. It's these. They're not a mystery we to, to us. Well, mm-hmm. actually, I think we. I think Democrats are a mystery to the mainstream media because 
they, they still haven't figured out Joe Biden, and he's about as middle-of-the-road Democrat as it <laughs> comes, and they still don't understand him. And if they don't understand him, then they really don't understand Democrats around the country. I, I think their vision of Democrats is probably similar to their vision of themselves. Urban elites in D.C., maybe L.A. or San Francisco and New York. But, you know, how about the Democrats in Michigan? When's somebody going to do a story on that amazing thing? Or the Democrats in Minnesota? Or, I mean, I don't know why everybody ignores Chicago, but we've got a lot of interesting stuff going on here. You know, um, I, I don't know. It's a mystery to you know, me. It's a mystery to me. There have there, been, been stories about, about how the erosion in working-class voters uh, moving the shift toward the Republicans. So why wouldn't you want to do a story about working class voters who are sticking with the Democrats and why they are? I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a, a logical story for an assignment editor to, to order up? I would think so, but I don't see it. It's always the same damn story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you you guys came from um, the a place in life when you were um, thinking up those stories and assigning those stories. Yeah. Why isn't it happening? I think I told you. I think, I think it's because yeah. some guy in an office in Manhattan is deciding that, boy, those guys with the red hats on, they're weird and we don't understand them. So let's send reporter after reporter after reporter out to talk to him at a diner. That's what that it's that simple, I think. Yeah, I think. And I also think it's, you know, oh, look. We're covering Trump voters again. Look how edgy we are. <laughs> Even though it's like a character. We're not are. afraid to go there. Yeah. Hey, oh, look we how went, we are. went to Iowa. Look at us. We went to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're such a great news organization. Um, quick oh, question. A little next bit of, we're going to New Hampshire. Yeah, oh. A little bit of change of direction here. Uh, I'd like you guys to talk about... Um, how you would like to see the coverage in New Hampshire uh, differ from the coverage in Ohio. How should the coverage of the New Hampshire primary change? Mark, you want to start with that one? Well, hmm. I think <laughs> that what you do is, uh, for, you know, for one thing, uh, I think you would... I think you would really ask a lot of voters. Usually, would do, I would do a, do a story on um, authoritarianism. Do a story on, you know, this is you know New Hampshire. Is, isn't that the live free or die thing? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that mm-hmm. the, so? Very so, good, uh, so, Mark. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'm Mr. Trivia. So, uh, so, so, yeah. So, but it's it's a state where, in fact, I know I have some libertarian relatives, and they like urged people to move there so it could become a libertarian state. I don't think that happened. But the truth is there is a real theme in New Hampshire about, you know, government overreach. So how does that, what's the dynamic with that and with Trump saying he wants to be dictator for a day and and all these other really good reports, some of the best reporting that's been done, while people, instead of interviewing people at diners in Iowa, a few good reporters have been interviewing Trump supporters in high places who are telling them all about the horrible things they want to do if Trump gets elected, you know, like take over the Justice Department and turn it into, you know, this avenging angel for Trump and stuff like that. Those are the good stories. So so clearly we know that Trump wants to be a dictator when he takes office. So wouldn't it be a really good story to see how, how that dynamic clashes with the live free or die thing in New Hampshire? It seems to me like that's a pretty good story. and You don't have to go to a diner to get it. 
It, oh, by uh, the so, way, so, guys, so are- I just got a text from Petty Vasquez who said MSNBC switched it up today. They went to a bowling alley. So there you have it. Oh. <laughs> Look at that. Wow. That's the mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess that's one story I would do. And, and there, you know, just do stories about issues. Do stories, find people who go to a, in a, an abortion clinic in, you know, in New Hampshire and find out how, you know, how scared they are. Are any of them Republicans? And if they are Republicans, who people who work in the abortion clinics, why are they Republicans? And what kind of differentiation do they see between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump on the issue? I mean, to me, that's a sophisticated story, you know, but, but see, the thing is those two, those two stories I just assigned would be better <laughs> stories than, than the stories that, that, that we're seeing because yeah. they would, they would, because they're actually thinking about the situation instead of doing the same kind of cookie cutter crap that they always do. Um, Patty Vasquez uh, texted in where she was watching the MSNB, MSNBC trip to the bowling alley and uh, she said this was in New Hampshire. One woman told them she was a liberal, but she was going to vote for Nikki Haley because of Biden's age and position on Israel. And we need more women in office. The follow up mm-hmm. question should have been, what about your values as a Democrat, like abortion and labor rights? Which leads us back to another uh, issue we've talked about. The follow up question. We're an interviewer. And let me tell the audience, the best interviewers listen to the answers their questions elicit. I used to go into interviews with like 10 questions written on my little reporter notebook. I would ask the first question and all the rest would go out the window because the answer to the first question led me to another question. And the answer to that question led me to another question, which is exactly kind of what I I do on the radio. I don't write out generally a long list of questions that I'm going to ask somebody because when you listen to somebody, you there's almost always something in what they tell you that requires follow up or um, or 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 ex- exploration. The follow up question is there is it just people don't have time anymore? What what the hell? No, you know what? I think follow up questions are hard. I, I mean, they're not really, but it's easier not to ask it. So, I mean, I, I need to say this because I haven't said it lately when we've been on the air. You know, I really do love journalism, and I think people are doing a really good job. But and I know it doesn't seem like that from everything that I've said so far today. But that said, I think some of these things that we would like to see require um, more heavy lifting than news organizations or individual reporters are willing to do for a variety of reasons. So why aren't there a variety of stories in New Hampshire or Iowa or wherever the next place is that they go? Because it's easier to do the easy story. It's easier to go to a Nikki Haley event than it is to not go to that event and go find a story that's unique to you. It's easier to do the same story everybody else is doing and ask the same questions. Um, It's easier not to ask the follow-up question because then you might get into a sticky wicket and then somebody might say something bad about you online. Um, you know, um, I mean, I, I hate to say it. I think reporting is hard. I think it's gotten harder. I think it's a tough job. There's fewer journalists than there have been in a long time, and that is not good for any of us. But the ones that are left, are they have so many competing things 
happening every day. You know, it's like a book deal, the deal for the cable slot. Um, I got to get in more followers on social media so my boss will keep me or renew my contract. Oh, by the way, I'm doing a story today. Yeah, I got to worry about that, too. You know, I just think I think it's hard. Um, but some of these things, man, I, I saw Nikki Haley today interviewed by Dana Bash and uh, where she claimed not to know all about Trump's legal woes mm-hmm. and because she clearly wanted to move off that topic. Dana, is it Dana or Dana? I don't know, but she Dana, Dana. really, she should yes. have really pushed her on that because that is a fundamental question. If you but think you, you can be the president of the United States, you ought to be paying attention to these things and don't tell me you're not. And she should have kept asking her, her about it um, because if she doesn't really doesn't know, well, that's bad. And if she's <laughs> lying, that's bad. <laughs> I actually saw another reporter, the NBC reporter that covers her, responded to the clip about that interview saying how incredulous it was to think that Nikki Haley didn't really know that because Nikki Haley was known for having studied the opposition research on on DeSantis down to the, you know, granular level. Um Anyway, right. So she's just, so so she really is lying, and 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 that's yes. why that's why the, the, the follow up should be should be well. Wait, so so you're saying you you you're, you're not you're not familiar with the legal problems of the main person you're running against that yeah. you have not been briefed. How can that be? What kind right? of campaign yeah. are you running? You know, is right. isn't that a failure in your campaign that you don't know that? I mean, that, I that's a legitimate question. And it, but that's aggressive, you know, and, oh, we don't want to be aggressive. We want to be nice. You know, and, and, and Dickie Haley, you know, the, the thing that drives me nuts is when people say, oh, she's a moderate. Oh, oh, she's a great alternative to Trump. Well, she's probably not as bad at Trump, but who, as Trump, but who is? But, I mean, but she's she's awful. And, she, and this thing that she said today, you know, about how this country has never been racist, my head blew up. I mean, I couldn't believe that somebody could say something like that. I mean, did, did you, have you heard of slavery? Did that happen? I think it was in all the books that you want to ban, I guess. And, 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 and how do you get away with that? I mean, how does she get away with saying something that stupid? Uh, that's a very good question. And, and I don't know. I was listening this morning to what, Brianna, what is her last name, Kyler, um, on CNN. Mm-hmm. And I felt mm-hmm. really bad for her because she was interviewing a Republican congressperson who clearly was saying things that weren't true. But she didn't. She even said, you know, she said, uh, you know, I, I don't know about this, uh, the, the details of this bill you're referencing. So I can't fact check you. And I was and I it, what a terrible position to be in. And I know you can't predict everything that these people are going to say, but at least she at least she sort of hinted that perhaps if I did know about this bill, I might be saying that you're offline here. Um, But she didn't at least just sit there and let him spout like she was okay with it. And, and, you know, I mean, admittedly, that's a very bad alternative, but I think it's better than just sitting there and letting them talk. I think it's too, but but really, shouldn't they have have like uh, researchers, you know, um, right One there? One would think. 
one would think. Shouldn't they they have somebody whose job it is, or two people or three people whose job it is, to to monitor what's on the air and quickly look things up? And then, then Brianna Keeler could, you know, five minutes, ten minutes later could come back and say, well, no, that wasn't true. Instead of doing it, you know, two or three hours later, if at all, back when everyone's turned off, the, everyone who heard the original lie is turned off the TV. I mean, come on. I mean, this is this is doable. It's not like this is not a solvable problem. Television, if they're going to do live interviews with liars, which maybe they should not. Maybe they should tape them and then check them. In fact, well, if they don't them, have the if they don't have the resources, if they don't have the producers to give the anchors any background they need to do an interview, then then I think you're right. The only way to do it is to do them on tape. You know, and somebody Kristen Welker has gotten a lot of uh, blowback for her uh, interviews, but uh, and I think maybe I'm going to write a newsletter in the future that will kind of talk about. Why it's not her fault that her interviews are so bad? Because uh, you know, because she's sorry. talking to people. I'm who, sorry, I disagree with you. I, I well, you know, I think it, right, I think right. it absolutely me, is her fault. You know, she's got was, one 30 minute show. She's going to have one <laughs> guest, and if she doesn't have a staff researching, then she should. I'm sorry. Take all day Saturday and no, and look through what here's you want to say and what you want to fact check. Kristen well, Welker. I, Makes me so angry. Oh. <laughs> oh, I guess I hit a I hit a hot button there. The, uh, the, the what, my point is that, that when she's interviewing someone like Elise Stefanik, Elise Stefanik does three separate lies in a single sentence. So, so I mean, so how do you contend with that? It's like you say the the, the point is you can't do her live. You can't do liars live when they talk so fast and say so many lies. And but but just in Welker's defense, and I know this is she's a terrible and there's a lot, a lot of horrible stuff to get onto, onto her show. I'm not arguing with that. But last week, when I, I was watching her show, just to see if she was as bad as she was the previous week with Stefanik, <laughs> and, and she wasn't. She was talking to um, Joni Ernst, the senator from uh, Iowa, who was uh, actually neutral in the race. And and uh, and and Walker said, "Well, you've you've described January 6th as an insurrection." Insurrection, and Joni Ernst says, "No, I haven't." And uh, Walker says, "Yes, you did. You, in this op-ed for the Des Moines Register last year, you did describe it as an as an insurrection." So so maybe she's going to get a little bit better. Maybe someone's going to equip her with the receipts to where she to in real time she can tell liars that they're lying because that's the best way to do it. I agree. It's the best way to do it. And if you know, if she were a cub reporter in um, Peoria, I would say, yeah, maybe she'll get better. But for God's sakes, Mark, she is on a (laughs) prominent news show. She came from that as a White House correspondent. I am sorry. You're either ready for that job or the job should go to somebody else. Yeah, I'm just saying, here's what my point is with bosses. It's her boss's fault, too. That's definitely. Yeah. Uh, But I think it's about um, what she wants to do, not what she can do. And I I default back to my usual thing of I she didn't want to go toe to toe on every fact check. She doesn't want to be that gal. She doesn't want to be Betty Hassan. She didn't know. No, that's not her brand. And she doesn't want it because. Because it's too controversial. So 
She'll take the slings and arrows from people like us because she doesn't give a hoot about that. But she does not want to be the, you know, suddenly Jim Jordan, like, got a campaign going saying no Republicans are going on meet the press because did you see what she did to our friend? I mean, that's where these things can go. I think that, so I think that the motivation is a little bit different. Let's just also stop for a second. Meet the Press has a ton of resources. They have researchers. Let me just say, they have researchers. (laughs) So it isn't a resource question. I think it's a motivation question. Also a skill question. Takes a special kind of interviewer. Joan, you know this. You're an expert at it. Takes a special skill to 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 stay in the fight and to be you know go after uh, everything and remember it and stay focused on it. Mm. Right, it's high pressure. Yeah, and it can be exhausting. Yeah, but you know what? Yeah. It can be exhausting if you do it every day. If you're only doing it once a week, <laughs> you would think she could you know be a little more well rested and be up to the game. That's what, you know. Yeah, I think she's up to it. I think she doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah. that makes sense, you know. I mean, that's, to me, that is a more sensible understanding of this than, than the fact that she was, um, you know, that she didn't get good research. Um, guys, uh, thank you so much. We're out of time. This hour always flies by. Thank you so much, Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob, for our media segment. I appreciate both of you, and um, I look forward to the next one. Talk to you soon. Okay. See you guys. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but you may be aware that um, roughly a week ago, there were accusations against Israel that were heard before the International Court of Justice at The Hague, uh, accusations that Israel was committing genocide in Gaza. Genocide is something we talked about yesterday and exactly what was the legal definition and um, whether you if you are trying to exterminate a people in any way, shape or form, that is that is genocide. Uh, this case was presented, was prosecuted, if you will, by South Africa. And um, at first it seemed like there wasn't a lot of pushback. And then Germany, German officials Uh, decided that they were going to push back against these South African accusations. That is a real uh, small, short, condensed overview of what happened. And it is a it is an occurrence that deserves more, more information and more expertise weighing in on it. We are doing a special segment today with our good friend, political science professor uh, Joel Ostro, who you've uh, come to know as our expert on all things Russia. Um, but he is here today, and he is joined by Brian Endless, 
who's the director of African Studies and the African Diaspora, as, a, as well as being a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Loyola University. Um, gentlemen, thank you so very much for being here. I really appreciate you doing this. Brian, I know that you are an expert on international law and genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity, which up until a few days ago, I thought those were all the same thing. Um, I have since learned that there is a difference. Talk to us about the difference between these things. And by the way, welcome to our little program, first and foremost. <laughs> first, thank you for having me on, Joan. I appreciate it. Love the show. Very pleased to be on. Yeah, it's very common for people to see no real difference between genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes. And it's all a very technical, legal thing. I'll give you the brief version and then let you ask any questions and let Joel pipe in, too. Basically, war crimes are crimes committed during war. So the act of war itself is not a crime. When countries fight, when soldiers fight, there are laws of war. And they've been put together in a lot of different forms since the 1800s, actually. The Geneva Conventions, uh, the two Geneva Conventions in 1949 are the ones we use the most. And there are additional protocols. And then the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, they all lay out things that are crimes during war. And I'll just tease with the fact that for um, Gaza, for Ukraine, for anything we might talk about today, attacks against civilians is the number one crime during war. That's just forbidden. And there are questions of whether there are exceptions or not. But according to the law, you should not be attacking civilians. Uh, crimes against humanity are very similar crimes, but that are done not in a war context. They're usually inside of a single country. And then genocide. Genocide is held out as something very different. And this is a place I think we need to be incredibly careful with how we look at and use the word genocide. Politically, it almost sounds like every war is a genocide, but that's simply not true. And you kind of said it at the beginning, there's a genocide convention and two um, protocols to that convention. And what that lays out is the rules of when something is a genocide. It has to involve an intent. Intent is important to destroy a group. So if you destroy a group during war and your intent is to take over a country or a region, that's not necessarily genocide. You have to have an intent to destroy a specific group of people. And the types of group are laid out, national, ethnic, racial, religious. It might be killing. It might be causing bodily harm. It might be inflicting conditions, trying to end the group. There are a number of different parts of that definition. But all three of these are different aspects of the same thing. Okay, I understand that Israel's stated mission in Gaza is the elimination of Hamas. They, they want to make sure Hamas can never attack them again. There are lots of, well, there are lots of people from a lot of countries, but there are a lot of Palestinians who live in Gaza. And it seems to have been acknowledged on all sides that there, because of uh, where Hamas puts its headquarters um, and because of the difficulties with urban warfare, there will be a large number of civilian casualties. But I have not heard Israel express the desire 
to kill every Palestinian person or somehow make it impossible for them to ever, ever thrive, to wipe them out in some way. So I don't understand how the charge of genocide could be legally brought in an international court. What am I missing, Brian? So I had the exact same question about um, four or five weeks ago. At the beginning, people were of this conflict, October 7th. Um, first of all, we should talk about Hamas, too. Hamas's attack was absolutely war crimes. They killed 1,200 people, and then they took over 200 hostages. Most of the people they killed were civilians. Those were war crimes. I'd also strongly argue that was genocide simply because Hamas's charter and their leader statements yes. say they want to wipe out the Israeli people. So that's another side we don't talk about, and we can bring up as much as you like. On the Israeli side, though, I was arguing for several weeks with people and very strong in the idea that I believed that war crimes were being committed, civilians were being harmed in ways that were not necessary. It is simply not true that you have to kill civilians during war. Some may die, but the numbers and proportionality is important. And by almost any definition, Israel has gone beyond the pale in terms of the number of civilians kill. That's almost definitely a war crime. The question of genocide, though, as you just asked, goes to intent. And I hadn't seen that as much until a couple weeks before the South African case. Uh, NPR did a great study on the statements of Israeli leaders. And because I don't always read Israeli news and don't watch Israeli news, it wasn't clear. There have now been thousands of statements by Israeli leaders that involve the concept of wiping out everyone in Gaza. They talk about treating Palestinians. They say no Palestinian is a civilian. That's just false. That's simply not true. They say every Palestinian is a member of Hamas. It is okay for them to go after Hamas. That's not genocide, but it's the civilians that are important. And then everyone from Benjamin Netanyahu to the president of the country to the foreign minister to members of the military have been making statements about wiping out Palestinians. Um, one of the ones I'd like to point out is uh, Netanyahu has a regular statement that he makes that quotes the Bible. It quotes the Old Testament, the Torah, and it comes from the book of Samuel. It's the um, story of Saul sparing King Agag. And it's it's basically a story that says we, the Lord has commanded us to kill the people who have attacked us. They have attacked us in terrible ways, and we must kill them. They ambushed us, and we must kill them. But then Netanyahu often leaves out the very next line. And this is one of the places in the Old Testament where, where God of the Old Testament talks about genocide. He says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And this is the prime minister of Israel quoting this line from the Bible about what Israel should be doing in Gaza. That's this intent to commit genocide, unfortunately. And the South African case before the ICJ has over 80 of those statements in it of Israeli leaders. And unfortunately, there are more than that. I'm going to ask Joel to step in yeah. here. Um, obviously, there are a very core group of hard right people who support Netanyahu. It sounds like he was playing to that group. 
But Netanyahu is no fool. Uh, how could he say something that would open up his country to um, further rebuke? I mean, he should be trying to get the support of the international community. Politically, that seems like uh, a, an unwise play. What do you think? He, what do you think he's trying to gain, Joel? Well, well as I suspected when I, when uh, I introduced uh, you to Brian. I figure we would agree on about 99% of the things and have a disagreement on 1%. Um, it is worth noting Netanyahu did not <laughs> quote the second part of what Brian read there. Oh, oh no, he and, left that part out. <laughs> and, but I think Brian's and, and he left it out anybody because who's, um, who's going there, you know, mm-hmm. kind of knows where that statement goes. But he usually follows it with, this is why we need to wipe out Hamas. Um, and... Um, the definition, so genocide's a crime, right? It's a convention uh, on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. Uh, and as Brian rightly noted, the crime is an intent. It's an idea uh, uh, to um, destroy a people as such. Uh, not a group necessarily, a, a people, meaning a religious group, ethnic, national group, um, uh, as we would, and, and genocide derives from that. Um, Greek words for race and killing, so you can think of it as race killing. Um, but there are many other kinds of groups, and um, I'm glad you're having this discussion with us because really even in, in the context of those who are uh, protesting Israel's actions quite legitimately, uh, there seems to be an urgency and insistence that that what Israel is doing be labeled genocide, and it's not clear at all. Um, and, and but at the same time, as Brian noted, um, uh, you know, genocide—the definition is not mass killing. Um, it is not repeated crimes against humanity. It is not repeated war crimes. Those things are crimes. Uh, and um, although Israel might claim that their intent is not to kill civilians. Um, it is a crime if you know that in your actions you are going to kill civilians in war. Armies are supposed to refrain from doing that. And Israel is showing no sign of, of, of even trying to limit its killing of civilians. Um, so there are major crimes that Israel is committing on a daily basis in Gaza. Those need to be prosecuted, punished, uh, prosecuted, convicted, and punished. Um, they are different crimes Genocide has taken on this aura since the Holocaust and since it's um, since the, the term was coined as being the worst possible thing that uh, people can do to other people. Um, and uh, in my class the other day, I, I, I presented two scenarios. You have scenario A, uh, somebody rapes nine women. And then you have scenario B, someone uh, kidnaps, blindfolds, uh, puts in a cell and repeatedly tortures nine women. They're different crimes. Which one's worse than the other one? Um, so, but it is important to be able to distinguish one crime from another. Um, and and so the the clearest distinction is uh, since coming to Moscow in 1999, uh, Putin has explicitly laid out his doctrine that Ukraine is not a thing, that Ukrainian is not a thing, 
that any effort to have a, a separate Ukraine or Ukrainian from Russia and Russia is illegitimate, and those who defend those things should be wiped out. His intent towards Ukraine is clearly genocidal and has pursued strategy and tactics to back up that doctrinal intent. It's explicit, repeated, clear, there's no mistaking it. Um, but it is difficult, as, as you pointed out, Joan, to, uh, to suggest that Israel seeks to wipe out Arabs or Palestinians. Um, there are Palestinian parties and Palestinian members in the Israeli Knesset. Um, Israel's not carrying out anything similar towards uh, the West Bank. Um, and Hamas has, uh, has made Israel's task of uh, retaliating, responding for October 7th, almost impossible by committing also uh, war crimes by embedding itself in and underneath and around all of the citizens of Gaza. Israel can't in any uh, significant way uh, fight against Hamas while it is hiding in plain sight uh, among civilians. Um, so there are plenty of war crimes to go around on both sides. Um, Israel is committing those crimes on a daily basis. I want to repeat that and emphasize it. Um, but, but I think genocide is not, not properly applied there, or at least can be disputed. Now, now, I'll make the final point. The open question is whether an effort to uh, eliminate everyone of a political party or of a group, um, to eliminate a terrorist group or really any other grouping of people should fall under the crime of genocide. Um, I argue that, that it should not, um, because it just makes it, it, it makes the whole concept uh, more blurry, more cloudy than it needs to be. And there's other way, other ways to handle those kinds of mass killings. Well, very Brian quickly on that last point, Joel. Go ahead. Uh, I'll completely agree. Political parties are explicitly taken out of the genocide convention, yeah. not included. And then terrorist groups are effectively militaries, and militaries right. can fight against each other till the end. So those yeah. are both legitimate. Well, I was going to say, Brian, that um, you know, Joel has reminded me that I should be um, perhaps a little more precise. And I guess what Israel was charged with was genocidal intent. Um, I am now so deep in the weeds, Brian, I can no longer see my feet. Um, yeah. Is that a distinction without a difference? And why does South Africa... Um, feel so yeah. uh, strongly about Israel. Is there bad blood there that I'm missing? Um, a little bit, but not that much, and, and actually several different points to break up. If I can interject one thing first, Joan, just so my family doesn't kill me, um, ah. like the... I'd like to let everybody know <laughs> I'm half, half Jewish. I um, completely and utterly support the fact of the existence of a state of Israel yep. and all Israeli civilians. I also completely and utterly support the Palestinian people and all Palestinian mm -hmm. civilians. When I'm speaking here, I'm speaking about Hamas's actions, not Palestinian actions, and about mm -hmm. the actions of the Israeli government, not the Israeli people. And Thank I want to make the, that distinction really, really clear because I think that's important. Mm -hmm. 
Um, to your point on the weeds, though, yes, you're in the weeds, and yes, that's why this is so important as a legal concept. It is not simple to accuse someone of genocide. All of the statements that I'm making, I want to make sure that they're not seen as um, definitive because my real point is there there is plenty of evidence, I think, in the case of Israel to suggest that an investigation of genocide should go forward. And I think the ICJ case was a good way to begin that investigation. Um, if we get to Ukraine, Joel and I disagree a little bit there, too, about how much intent Russia has showed toward genocide and whether that's more war crimes. Well, I have, um, I have, if I could break in here, the, the sure. I spoke to somebody from the military college uh, yesterday, and they said that when it comes to Ukraine, simply the act of the fact that they are taking Ukrainian children and taking yeah. them to Russia, in his mind, that, 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 there you go, that's genocide. They are mm-hmm. trying to eliminate a people. They are taking the children, the uh, children who will grow up hopefully thinking they're Russian and not Ukrainian. And he said that's all you need to know right then and there. That is mm-hmm. what he said would certainly, uh, he believed in any international court, prove the argument of genocide. But like I said, uh, South Africa is saying there was uh, genocidal intent. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, Brian, uh, because one of the defenders was was talking about how, you know, yeah, all the all South Africa did was, um, yeah, they brought in a bunch of quotes from a bunch of people in government, um, but they cherry picked those quotes and they didn't mm-hmm. give them context and they didn't mention any of the quotes that bring a different point of view. In other words, you know, it was it was really um, an unfair sort of charge. What do you think about that? Um, that's exactly why we have courts, and that's exactly why we have legal arguments. South Africa was doing the prosecutorial job of trying to make the case as hard as they could, and they did not see their job as making a fair case. But Israel has a judge on the court, and it, um, when you're accused of something, you automatically get to place a judge on the ICJ. And Israel has both themselves and others um, defending them in the court who are supposed to bring up that other side. So, yes, that is very much what happens? They cherry pick the worst comments. On the question of um, that taking children in Russia, that is 100% what is called an act of genocide. Mm-hmm. So the people responsible for that could and should be charged with genocide. They could be charged in Russia or by uh, in Ukraine or by an independent court. And I think they should be found guilty of genocide if what we know about that is true. It does not, however, show and again, here we're in the weeds, a conspiracy to commit genocide or a plan to commit genocide. So if you want to say that a country has taken genocidal or a government in this case has taken genocidal actions or committed genocide, you've got to show a pattern of those types of things Mm -hmm. over time. And that's part of what the South African case does is try to show that pattern, not just um, since October 7th, but going back to 2007 and even going back further before that. Um, and then you know, to the point of how do you prove it? Intent is, again, just one point. So um, what you have is genocide. You can commit the following action can be punishable as genocide according to the convention. You can commit genocide. You can commit these acts of genocide. Or you can have a conspiracy to commit genocide, mm-hmm. people talking about committing genocide. You can have direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Mm-hmm. This is clear in Russia. This is 
this is one yes. of the key things they're accused of. And in the case of Israel, a lot of people have been going on TV and some of the comments in the South African case mm-hmm. have been suggestions of incitement. You can have an attempt to commit genocide. I'd argue that's what Hamas was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to kill everyone to commit. You don't have to kill anyone, frankly, to right. have an attempt to commit genocide. You're just trying to do it. And you can have complicity in genocide. And this is something now just this week. South Africa accused the United States of complicity in Israel's alleged genocide in Gaza because we know about it and haven't stopped it. So that, again, can be one of the things that comes up. There's a lot of different pieces of the weeds that we can go through. The reason that crime hasn't is, is so difficult to prosecute is, in the end, the crime is an idea. It's a thought, right? It's an intent. Is the, the intent is the crime in genocide. And then there are all sorts of things that can be done to um, provide evidence of that intent. Uh, and um, just comparing these two cases, the, there is so much more evidence, at least of from the very top in Russia and over 23 years now, uh, of that that intent and the build up towards it, um, but I, I go back uh, to what Brian said is that um, you know no matter how you slice it, these are crimes and and these are crimes being committed in Gaza by the government of Israel. Uh, that and and the the worry the concern is is the conflation of uh, the government of Israel for the the people of Israel just as it is the Hamas with Palestinians. And, and those need to be kept separate because uh, you move in the other direction and then, then it's a whole different, whole different world of concerns, right? A hundred percent. And that's one of the big things I think that the U.S. Yeah. press doesn't do well is separate those things out and talk about it. You can argue right. with the Israeli government without being right. anti-Semitic. Saying the Israeli people don't have a right to do something is a very different thing. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, Brian, that Joel and I have talked about is that um, this conflict has um, made both of us realize that a lot of people are simply incapable of nuance, or as we like to put it, they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. They can't seem to hold these different ideas that, you know, I don't like the government, but that doesn't mean I like Hamas or think that what they did was okay. We need to take a, a break. There's um, a lot more to talk about this. I'm joined by Brian Endless, who's the director of African Studies and the African Diaspora, senior lecturer in the Department of Public Science, uh, Political Science at Loyola, and um, Joel Ostro, uh, political science professor, Benedictine University. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University and political science professor Brian Endless from Loyola University. We have been talking about uh, genocide. And, Brian, you said something that I want to go back to. You know, we were talking about how South Africa has been prosecuting uh, the case that there was genocidal intent on the part of Israel. They've been doing this at the um, at the Hague And you said, uh, because I said Israel responded by saying they had cherry-picked some of the quotes that they were sharing with the international audience. And you said something along the lines of, well, you know, they're allowed to do that because they are prosecuting the case. And so they are going to pick, you know, the most egregious examples they can find. 
I'm going to sound probably ridiculously naive right now, but I thought the International Criminal Court at The Hague was supposed to be above the whole winning and losing kind of thing that we see play out here in courts in the United States. Oh, you know, prosecutors need to win at all costs, you know, so they're going to, you know, do everything that they can. And I thought that this at this level, it was supposed to be about truth and justice. Am I just just a silly, silly person? I'm sorry, Joan, but that is, in fact, a bit naive. Oh. <laughs> oh. You know, I just wanted to I wanted to think that this was an organization that was above politics and above human foibles. Not at all. No, they've got the same um, prosecution versus defense. This is at the International Court of Justice, which adjudicates between states. But the International Criminal Court that tries individuals guilty of these types of crimes is exactly the same. Um, I've got a lot of friends. I've done some expert witness testimony at national courts, not at those. I've got a lot of friends who are both prosecutors and defense attorneys at those courts. I've got friends who have defended some of the worst genocide out out there under the idea that everybody deserves a defense and they might not be guilty of everything they're charged with because, frankly, the charges are often inflated. So it's not unusual that you see in these courts the prosecuting side, just like in the U.S., tries to throw the book and more at you and they will put in everything that they can and it is the job of the defense to bring it back to their version of the truth and to to show that their side is not guilty. So genocide's a weird one on this. And the Israeli case is really showing this. Israel's not saying they haven't killed Palestinians. It's on the record that they have. They're saying that any Palestinians who died were legitimately killed as a part of war. Um, It's not a war crime. They're not really on trial for war crimes, but they've argued that it's not a war crime. And it is not genocide because it doesn't fit the definition of genocide in the Genocide Convention. So no one has denied that Palestinian civilians have been killed. No one has denied that Israelis were killed to kick off this uh, horrible round of deaths on both sides. But the question of intent, the question of whether it fits the convention, legal definition of genocide in the convention is what's currently being argued in the courts. And fortunately or not, that looks a lot like our adversarial justice system in the U.S. And and to add to that, Brian, Israel also contends that... uh, from from their side that they are providing warning to Palestinians mm-hmm. to move out of neighborhoods before they get attacked. I mean, from where we sit, it looks pretty half-hearted or disingenuous right. uh, because they're moving them to areas and then bombing those areas. Uh, but but they're saying that the dropping of leaflets, you know, get out of here by noon tomorrow, um, uh, sort of absolves them of that uh, of both of those charges, whether yeah. war crimes or genocide. You know, th- this is all. But I would also add, you know, the International Court of Justice, as you said, is is adjudicates disputes between states. By definition, that's going to be political, right? Um, different states are going to have different different uh, interpretations, different arguments, uh, different positions, and and. You know, that is ultimately, it's the realm of the intersection of law and politics right there, law and international politics. 
The leaflets are one of my favorite parts of what Israel yeah. does. I have a weird definition yeah. of favorites, by the way, because I study genocide and war crimes and things. Um, <laughs> Israel has done that forever. Yeah. Uh, anytime forever. they attack Palestinians, if they say there's mm-hmm. a terrorist attack, they respond and they either drop leaflets or make mm-hmm. phone calls to give people a yeah. chance to leave. This goes back to the laws of war since the 1800s and early mm-hmm. 1900s. This was done in World War One before the armies mm-hmm. would invade a town. They would give yeah. 24 hours warning for people to get out. Um, the difference in the Israeli situation in Gaza, and the Israelis have unfortunately done this in the past, is they're giving warning to people that's very short warning, and right. they're giving warning to people who can't get out because of With the situations they created. But There's is that, nowhere that's to go. not Israel's fault? Um, if they are indeed giving warning as required by law, and whether or not you argue they're fulfilling the spirit of the law, they certainly seem to be fulfilling the letter of the law. Uh, but, Joan, if you give warning to someone to leave a house, but you close all exits from the house, what good is the warning? I think that's what Brian's trying to say. Exactly. Uh, and the same thing comes up with human shields. That's another piece of the argument, Joan, that, hey, the Hamas is holding these people as human shields. That is a fact. Hamas has yes. held people as human shields. That is a war crime. Absolutely yes. no question about it. Hamas holds Palestinians as human shields. Yes. It's pretty clear. Hamas just doesn't care that much about the Palestinian people. They use them as tools here. But when Hamas holds someone as a human shield, that doesn't doesn't give Israel the right to kill right. the human shield. Um, right. I like to give an analogy. I thought I started it, honestly, I mean, I'm not saying this. Uh, I, I actually thought it did, that it was no. it was considered, I don't know what you call it, the cost of war or or, or collateral damage. No. But if if uh, someone is hiding behind someone and that someone gets killed in an effort to get the bad guy, I thought that that international law, that the law no. of um, of the Geneva Convention said basically, yeah, you know, as long as you don't go too far overboard, we understand no. that's a part of it. The, no? the U.S. The government opposite. wants, yep, the U.S. government wants you to believe that. Israel wants yeah. you to believe that. Russia wants you to believe that. Mm-hmm. It's simply not true. I've been giving an analogy in class, and it's a domestic analogy I think fits very well. Joel, you can tell me if you like this one or not. <laughs> Let's say that I am a terrible um, domestic terrorist and I have blown up a number of different places in town and now I am hiding in a school and the feds have tracked me down and I've set bombs in other schools and I'm hiding behind a bunch of students and teachers and I've got them all in a room ringing around me. What are the police allowed to do? is a very similar analogy. The police can storm the room and try to take me out. The police can have a sniper take me out. That's clear. And those are things that you can do in warfare, too. But think about it. Are the police allowed to shoot through one of the hostages to kill me? Most of us would say no. Now let's go to warfare. Are the police allowed to bomb the building that I'm in to get to me and kill everyone else in the building at the same time? Because that's exactly what's happening in the human shield situation. Innocent civilians are being killed to get at one or two or three or a handful of criminals. Perfectly reasonable to go after those criminals, not reasonable to kill the civilians while you do it. In war, if you know that your actions are going to kill or harm civilians, you are not supposed to take those actions, and those can be prosecuted as war crimes. 
We've even seen this in movies sometime where they've gotten it right. Um, some mm. attacks, oh, yeah. you take a you take a attack on a terrorist camp. If you send in a cruise missile and you kill everyone, you may be killing civilians and violating the laws of war. If SEAL Team 6 or someone else goes in, we have documented cases of them calling off missions because there were yes. kids there and they thought the kids might be killed. That's right. what you're supposed to do in warfare. Right. And that is why uh, uh, groups like Hamas embedding themselves among civilians is also a war crime uh, uh, for, for precisely this reason. And, and to those, in some way, I, I've, I've had these discussions with people saying, you know, what else is Hamas supposed to do? And, and uh, much of the world is, seems to have gotten confused that, that Hamas is with, confusing Hamas with resistance movements. Um, Terrorism is a strategy. It, it is a strategic choice. There are other choices. On October 7th, had Hamas blown up bridges, airports, had they taken out uh, military barracks, uh, I think that, that the world's understanding, that our understanding of what they had done uh, would be quite different. Uh, and perhaps even Israel's understanding of what they had done uh, would be quite different. Uh, it, it's sort of the difference between the strategy that Che Guevara and Castro took in, in Cuba versus what we saw on October 7th in Israel. Um, you know, guerrilla warfare is, is a legitimate strategy of warfare where you explicitly do not target the civilian population. But Hamas and, and Islamic Jihad have always done the opposite. They've, they've explicitly targeted civilians uh, with terrorist tactics. So, um, yeah. And the one thing I'll add to I agree completely. The one thing I'll add is their inhumanity, their brutality does not allow brutality on the other side. Exactly. If, uh, unless you want to be a barbarian, you need to right. follow the laws of war on the other side. Right. right. Um, a couple of questions here. Um, uh, as I understand it, the uh, International Criminal Court, their rulings are supposed to be binding, but they really have no way to enforce them. So... Is um, an effort like this simply a PR effort, Brian? So um, first, just to be clear, it's the International right. Court of Justice in this case. That's the one that adjudicates between states. The International okay. Criminal Court is individuals, but everybody confuses the, the two of them. Yep. The answer is the same for both of them, though. <laughs> it is technically binding. Um, Israel has actually gone before the court this time, which they've never done before. Mm -hmm. It's strange for Israel to even defend their case. Usually when they're accused of something, they just don't show up and they don't accept the legitimacy of the court. They've done that this time, but that doesn't mean they'll accept the legitimacy of the conclusion. In a technical sense, they are supposed to follow this, but yeah. that is a technicality that no one thinks is likely. What this is, is it's not just PR. It does, these types of rulings do tend to have what can be called a moral suasive effect. They give support to the counter-argument. They give support to other states and groups that ask Israel to stop because this is a genocide. In some ways, they might give support to the U.S. argument. We know the mm -hmm. Biden administration has been pushing Israel to be less violent. And mm -hmm. this may help support the Biden administration's mm -hmm. case um, because they are supporting Israel behind the scenes, but also behind the scenes asking them to back off, this may be a, hey, you need to help us and back off here. So the moral effect of this it can't always be seen in public. We may never know. We may know when the books are written 20 years.
years from now. But it's not non-existent. It is a factor. Guys, I've gone my considerably long life without reading about or talking about genocide, and now I'm talking about it on two fronts. Um, Joel, what has changed? So uh, after World War II, uh, in the wake of the Holocaust, uh, uh, the world ended up being split, right, between the democratic capitalist West, uh, led by the United States, and and the communist bloc uh, led by the Soviet Union. Uh, And the U.S. and the USSR basically disagreed on everything uh, with very, very few exceptions, one of which was that nationalism was illegitimate, uh, that nationalist movements needed to be combated, uh, and that both would not allow nationalist movements to arise under their spheres, and and largely succeeded in that effort uh, during that period of the Cold War. Um, But with the uh, end of the Cold War and the, and the demise of communism and, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, almost immediately the world saw uh, an explosion of nationalist movements uh, and the return of genocides um, in Rwanda, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in uh, Burundi, uh, Kosovo, Darfur, um, against the uh, Uyghur population in western China, the Rohingya in Myanmar, and Brian's list, I'm sure, includes many other cases, Uh, and more recently the conversations, obviously, about uh, Ukraine and and what is going on in Gaza. Um, uh, Really, uh, never again has become almost an empty phrase, Um, and... uh, um, this is the unfortunate reality of, of this new world disorder, if you will, um, that nationalism and genocide have, have really returned with a vengeance. Not that they were entirely eliminated during that Cold War period, but, but certainly the, the frequency and, and, uh, of cases seems to have exploded. And I'll put that just a little differently, Joel. The Cold War kept these conflicts down because Mm -hmm. it was in the best interest of the U.S. and the Soviets. And when their money went away at the end of the Cold War, um, everybody started popping up with a desire, whether nationalist or other desire, to get control of the country. Plus, the dictators the Soviets and U.S. had supported no longer had their support. And they went away, and that led to a lot of violent conflict. By the way, a couple Mm -hmm. big ones I'll add to your list, Democratic (laughs) Republic of the Congo, um, Azerbaijan and Armenia recently, and then Iraq and Syria with the Christians and the Yazidi and the Kurds. Um, Kurds, All all, all of those are questions of whether there are genocides going on there. Right. Good God. Do do either of you have a real optimistic take for like the next six months that you could share with me? Uh, Forget Joel, Brian. He never has an optimistic (laughs) take. This is all on you. (laughs) Joan, I am one of the most cynical idealists you will ever meet. So um, I'll try to put the cynical side out and then the idealist side out. The cynical side is, um, no, I have nothing positive to say. The the idealist side is, I think the Israeli and uh, Palestinian Gaza situation could start winding down. 
out. Um, the cynical side says a big piece of this is internal politics in Israel revolving about Benjamin Netanyahu. And it has just as much to do with that as it does to do with the October 7th attacks and a question of Netanyahu um, staying in power. And there have been a lot of people talking about that lately. On the more positive side, um, Israel has trouble staying at war for this long. The Israeli yeah. economy is taking a hit. Plus, this is the most I've ever seen seen Israel uh, affected by foreign influence. Usually they ignore everybody else during war, but usually their wars are very short. And getting into a longer war is hard for a tiny country with a small population. So I think realistically the Israeli government is going to need to try to find a way out of this. And I'm hopeful some of their allies will help. A lot of people are upset at the U.S. for not fighting with Israel. I'm a little bit less upset because I think the U.S., from what we know, is doing good things behind the scenes to try yes. to get Israel to pipe down and to keep it to whatever the minimum is. Also, if the U.S. argued out loud against them, it wouldn't we'd do any less, good. And we'd, we'd lose have less all of our influence. influence. Yeah, it, right. Exactly. We'd, we'd lose our influence. Exactly. And the Biden so administration has long taken, uh, uh, often taken hits uh, when it's uh, doing masterful diplomacy behind the scenes and quiet where it's it's properly located. Um, Joan, I, I, can, I can add a positive, though, if you want. Oh, well, Maybe you're two. on thin ice, buddy. Go ahead. <laughs> um, as we've discussed before, Hamas timed these attacks at the time of the greatest fragility of the right-wing government in Israel because Hamas um, needs that right-wing government in Israel to legitimize its own position and its strength. Um, and so when those mass protesters were on the streets, and Netanyahu's coalition was looking like it was getting more and more fragile. Uh, this war boosted it, but I agree with Brian, it's a temporary boost, uh, and, and the people are, are unhappy with Netanyahu, um, and a changing government in Israel can only bode well uh, mm-hmm. for the future prospects of peace. On the, the other side, uh, in, in the Russia-Ukraine dispute, um, obviously uh, Putin had really no threat to his, his government, his control, uh, but um, and, and then there are the worries about Western resolve, particularly U.S. resolve, to continue supporting Ukraine. Uh, but in recent days, uh, our European allies have, have really fortified the resolve as the U.S. situation seems to have teetered. And uh, things have gone relatively quiet, but we have heard buzzing about um, – uh, negotiations internationally to take those frozen Russian assets and turn them to Ukrainian support. If we're able to do that with the several hundred billion dollars uh, in frozen Russian assets, uh, that could be a way to to continue to fund Ukraine. Now, there's questions about international in international law about uh, what and and really in in economic terms, uh, what would happen if. Uh, if, if we did seize those assets and directed them to Ukraine, the long-held thought was that that would tank the global economy because uh, confidence in those investments would decline if states could willy-nilly seize them. However, this is a different situation. Those countries that would uh, fear, the, uh, fear that would see these assets taken to Ukraine, and where would they go? They'd be reinvested in those very economies, whether South Korea or Japan or the United States or Germany, uh, to 
manufacture weapons and munitions that would go to Ukraine. So our very economies would benefit. And the floating of that idea of seizing those assets had virtually no negative impact on the markets because the markets understood that. I believe that things have gone quiet because the negotiations behind the scenes are where is all that productive capacity going to go if we do seize those assets and deliver them to Ukraine. In other words, that money from Russia is going to go to Ukraine, and then Ukraine's going to spend them to buy munitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to buy them from, quote unquote, us. Maybe history will bear that out, but that, that's, that's where my mind is gone. And if Ukraine gets those assets, um, uh, that would certainly. Uh, raise the prospects of, of turning the war and winding things down. So there's my Just optimism. Brief- Briefly adding, I'll go a little bit negative on the Ukraine side, sorry. Um, I think that it's pretty clear, and Joel, you may have talked about this before, that uh, Putin is waiting on the U.S. elections. And that's Mm going to be a big question where, depending on how the U.S. elections go, we might or might not see some change on Ukraine. Really? The one thing we haven't talked about that I think is a positive on Israel is most of the Arab world. Uh, Israel was coming close to reestablishing relations with the Saudis, with the Emirates, Palestinians. possibly with the Qataris, and pretty much everybody except Iran is moving toward better relations with Israel, and they wanted to do that. And Hamas very purposefully did this to try to break that up, but most of the um, Arab world does want this to end, and they they now have a little bit of leverage with Israel that they haven't Mm -hmm. had in the past. So I think that's another Mm -hmm. potential positive. Um, One of the things that I hear from my listeners, excuse me, is that, well, if Biden really wanted to end this conflict, he could just say, we're not sending any more money or munitions to Israel. And that's that's what Joe Biden should be doing. People don't really have a lot of patience with what might or might not be happening behind the scenes. Why or why not? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, first, I don't think Biden can just flat out do that. Um, second, even if he did, one of the things he has to think about is he'd lose the election automatically yep. at that point. He might as well just drop out because the Israel pro-Israeli hawks combined with the military industrial complex would come out of the woodwork. Democratic Party would stop supporting him. That's kind of a death sentence for a U.S. president. And people don't like to think about U.S. politics that way. But that really is a fact. Support of Israel is written into the presidency. And working with them and getting them to change is much more a political and a diplomatic and, as Joel said, a behind-the-scenes thing. Mm -hmm. If a president does it well, we're probably not seeing it until the peace agreement happens. But those who say that they're not going to support Biden because he's not supporting the Palestinians, uh, it it makes absolutely no sense because if you think you're going to get – a better situation for the Palestinians under Republicans and under Trump. But, you know, I want what you're smoking because that's some pretty <laughs> yeah, good, good stuff. Good luck with that. Um, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, Brian, no, it is you, so Joe. nice to have you on the show, and I certainly hope uh, you will come back and join us again. Joel, of course, we have Joel on almost every week. Uh, we've got blackmail on Joel. That's why he has the show. <laughs> yeah. um, Joe, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank Happy to both. be back on. Thank you both. It has been wonderful. Thank you, Joan. That is going to do it for me. Uh, Driving it home with the lovely Pate Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.